Why should I be frightened of dying? See no reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello and welcome to the Decoding Death podcast. Thank you very much for listening today. This is part two of Lakes of Bliss and Fire. And if you have not listened to the first episode, I would highly recommend that you give it a listen before we begin today. But if it's been a while, and I know it's taken me a while to get this part two out, I will do my best to reference back to things and explain them well as we continue on our discussion in this second episode. And this will be the conclusion to the exploration we began in part one of looking into the symbolism of lakes as they've appeared in near-death experiences and then corroborating them and comparing them with cultural and religious images of lakes from around the world. On top of that, we have layered in ideas of psychology and Jungian psychoanalysis and dream interpretation to try to understand why some of these strange ideas surrounding lakes emerged and what they might mean to us personally in terms of our own psychology. So in the previous episode, we sketched out what the lake means symbolically. We looked at all the different cultural examples of religious ideas about lakes and spiritual ideas and what people associated with the lake and what it meant. And that ended up looking something like it was the afterlife or a place where a deity resided or psychologically perhaps the unconscious. And we read near-death experiences which featured a lake as a heavenly place, a paradise which experiencers found themselves in. And when comparing the two, we found a resonance of meaning between the images of lakes and near-death experiences and those coming to us from cultures around the world. But with this episode, we are going to have a different focus the one that I think is equally relevant. And it's going to be answering a different question. Instead of, what does the lake mean? We are going to be asking, how do we relate to the lake? How should we act in reference to what the lake represents? All those symbolic associations that we've been through. Here we are getting into the story, so to speak. Because ultimately, we are the ones who have to navigate and negotiate with the autonomous imagery within us, which in this particular case is the symbol of the lake. And in this episode, as we look at the stories and figures associated with lakes in both positive and negative form, we'll start to see that how we relate to the lake how we should act in relation to what it represents, begins to look at its deepest level like ideas of salvation and damnation. And that is what characterizes the appearance of lakes in near-death experiences. Like the previous episode, I want to 
Start today by reading a quote, which is by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and is coming from his work entitled The Gay Science. Quote, There is a lake which one day refused to flow away, and threw up a dam at the place where it had hitherto discharged. Since then, this lake has always risen higher and higher. Perhaps the very renunciation will also furnish us with the strength with which the renunciation itself can be born. Perhaps man will ever rise higher and higher from that point onward, when he no longer flows out into a god. End quote. This quote by Nietzsche strikes me as the polar opposite of the quote with which we began the previous episode, a poem of Rumi's which was, Who could be so lucky? Who comes to the lake for water and sees the reflection of moon? And the difference between these two quotes is going to form the basis of our exploration of how we should act in relation to the lake. Because in Nietzsche's quote, man himself is the lake, rising higher and higher after no longer believing and flowing out into a god. Whereas in Rumi's quote, God is the lake. And with grace and gratitude, Rumi recognizes the divine beauty of what he's witnessing looking at this lake. The difference in these two philosophies, these two ways of looking at the world, I think is going to account for the difference we see in how the lake appears in near-death experiences. In the first episode, we read several near-death experiences in which the lake appeared as a paradise, as heaven, as a place of total beauty and peace. But that is not the only way that lakes appear in near-death experiences. There is also the lake of fire. And this episode will be focused on understanding how ideas of salvation and damnation factor into why some people see a lake as heaven and others see a lake as hell. And just so we have a clear understanding of this, I want to now read a near-death experience which features the lake of fire. This is coming from the IONS website and is entitled Lake View. Quote, It was Saturday, June 5th, 2009, around 12 p.m. I was lying in my bed with a high temperature and all of a sudden I felt very hungry. I managed to get out of bed and go downstairs for something to eat. I am extremely allergic to eggs, but at that time I was not aware of it. I ate a boiled egg and went into epileptic shock. The next thing I remember is darkness. I began moving through some sort of cavern or tunnel, and then it was as though the tunnel had exploded into flames. When I came out of the tunnel, I heard screams so loud it was deafening. The screams were from millions and millions of people in pain. I looked down and I could see a huge lake of fire 
with the outline of people from inside screaming. They saw me because I was up above this lake looking down on them. I could not make out exactly what they were saying, but they tried to speak to me. I think I could hear a lot of them say, Go back, go back. Don't come here. There's no way out. I could also make out, There's no hope. It was terrifying to hear the screams of these people. There was a sense of utter hopelessness in the screams. The smell in the air was horrible. It smelled like a rotting sewer. I was so scared I did not know what was happening. The next thing I knew, I was awake in a hospital bed with my mom by my side. End quote. So here we have an example of the lake of fire imagery appearing in a near-death experience. It's quite a stark difference from those near-death experiences we read in the previous episode, which featured a lake as heaven. It sounds gruesome and terrible and horrific, traumatizing. The account goes on a bit further to describe how the individual who had the experience went on to become a born-again Christian. And that seems to be a pattern among people who have hellish near-death experiences. There is often a strong conversion to Christianity or some other religious system. I will say that at least makes sense given the scale of the terror and trauma that the person will have experienced in witnessing something like that. But that kind of sets us up for diving into why this episode will be looking at ideas of salvation and damnation, and also the method by which we're going to be exploring these topics. And the question that it confronts us with is that, why do some people see a lake of fire and the others see a lake of heaven? How does the same image, which is the lake, get displayed so vastly differently? The answer seems to lie in the individual's experiences in life, their actions and moral choices. But the problem we are confronted with as outsiders looking in is that we don't know what kind of people these were. The people who had heavenly near-death experiences and hellish near-death experiences. We don't have a laundry list of all of their moral actions and choices, how they viewed the world, how they viewed their family and friends and loved ones. We just don't have access to that information. All that we have to go on is the images themselves. It's the image of the lake and the things that happened in the experience. And there is symbolic information, symbolic meaning in those images. But the only way to elaborate upon them and understand their meaning is to look at the same images as they appear in the cultural productions of mankind, in stories and religious ideas and myths. These are autonomous symbols that emerge from the collective 
human psyche and thus have an objective basis to them, so to speak. We can think of the consensus of a group of people around a particular symbol as a psychological fact. People think X about the lake in this culture, in this context. We can examine the beliefs that people have about what gets you to the lake of fire, what kind of person goes there. And we can also look at examples of salvation being connected with a particular lake. And how does one achieve that? That is going to be our method, and I apologize that it is somewhat circuitous and ambiguous. But the simple fact is that we don't have any other data to go on. We don't know the ins and outs and actions and deeds of each of these near-death experiencers. And at the end of the day, an NDE is an autonomous experience which happens to the individual. And its character and content will be defined by the relationship between the individual and whatever factor organizes and, and arranges the images in an NDE. And I don't know what that factor is. So with that in place and having seen an example of the Lake of Fire image in an NDE, we're going to switch gears and begin the episode looking at connections between the idea of salvation and the lake. From there, eventually towards the end of the episode, we'll get back to diving deeper into the dark side of the lake, the lake of fire. But I thought a good place to start with redemption and salvation might be a connection between the figure of Christ and the lake. This was a connection I was unaware of until a friend told me about it. That the Sea of Galilee, which played a huge role in the story of Christ and his miracles and his teachings, was actually a lake. It's had many names such as the Sea of Kinneret, or the Lake of Gennesaret, or Lake Tiberias. But it was very exciting for me to find that out because it is such a strong connection that Christ has with this particular body of water. So I'm going to read just a bit of background information on the Sea of Galilee just to get our bearings, and then we will continue on into the relation between Christ and the lake and what that has to do with salvation. Quote, the Sea of Galilee, also called Lake Tiberias, Kinneret or Kinnereth, is a freshwater lake in Israel. It is the lowest freshwater lake on earth and the second lowest lake in the world, after the Dead Sea, a saltwater lake. At levels between 215 and 209 meters below sea level, the lake is fed partly by underground springs but its main source is the Jordan River, which flows through it from north to south and exits the lake at the Degania Dam. In the New Testament, much of the ministry of Jesus occurs on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. 
In those days, there was a continuous ribbon development of settlements and villages around the lake, and plenty of trade and ferrying by boat. The Synoptic Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke describe how Jesus recruited four of his apostles from the shore of the Kinneret, the fisherman Simon and his brother Andrew, and the brothers John and James. One of his famous teaching episodes, the Sermon on the Mount, is supposed to have been given on a hill overlooking the Kinneret. Many of his miracles are also said to have occurred here, including his walking on water, calming the storm, the disciples in the miraculous catch of fish, and his feeding 5,000 people. In John's Gospel, the sea provides the setting for Jesus' third post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. End quote. So there we have an overview of the lake in question, the Sea of Galilee, and its connection to Christ. And we're going to dive deeper into some of those specific miracles. I'm going to read the verses. But before I do, there was one other piece of symbolism that I wanted to incorporate and plant a particular seed because I think it will further inform what we're going to get into when talking about how Christ is able to perform some of these aforementioned miracles. And that is the symbolism of the fish, a well-known Christian symbol. Because not only do we have the symbolism of the lake and all of its associations which we've discussed, but we also have this fish symbolism, Christ as the fish, as the dweller of the lake. That just adds an extra layer of meaning of what we're going to be discussing, connection between Christ and the lake and miracles and salvation. And to illustrate this, I found a brief passage in a work by Jung called Ion, which nicely summarizes the Christian fish symbolism. Quote, And thus inaugurates an age in which the fish was used as a name for the God who became man, who was born as a fish and was sacrificed as a ram, who had fishermen for disciples, and wanted to make them fishers of men, who fed the multitude with miraculously multiplying fishes, who was himself eaten as a fish, the holier food, and whose followers are little fishes, the pishikuli. End quote. I thought that might be useful as we move forward and begin talking about three of Christ's miracles at the lake and trying to frame and answer the question of how can Christ perform these miracles? How can Christ use the lake in such a way? And it's because symbolically he is a part of it. He is the fish who has come out of the lake to teach us about it. And that is how he can create and do impossible things which we cannot. And this is all symbolic, but represents a psychological state which is intimated by Christ's teachings and that perhaps we can move towards. And that might be something akin to salvation. 
or a relationship, a perfect relationship to what the lake represents. So from here I want to continue using our symbolic lens to examine three of Christ's miracles. We're going to start with one of his most famous, his walking on the water, which took place on the Sea of Galilee, on a lake. I'm going to be reading a couple verses from the Gospel of Matthew, the American Standard Version. This is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 34. Quote, And straightway he constrained the disciples to enter into the boat, and to go before him unto the other side, till he should send the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain apart to pray. And when even was come, he was there alone. But the boat was now in the midst of the sea, distressed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night he came unto them, walking upon the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee upon the waters. And he said, Come. And Peter went down from the boat and walked upon the waters to come to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and took hold of him and saith unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were gone up into the boat, the wind ceased. And they that were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came unto the land, unto Gennesaret. End quote. Here not only do we have a version of one of Christ's most famous miracles, walking upon the waters of the lake, but also our first example of the lake's connection with salvation, albeit in a symbolic form. Christ saves Peter as he begins to drown after trying to walk upon the water like Jesus had done. As the fish, Jesus is one with the lake and therefore can walk upon its waters. It is an extension of him. And briefly, it is an extension of Peter as well as he walks towards Jesus. This implies that the relationship between the individual, like Christ or Peter, and the totality, like the lake, can go so far as to save one from imminent danger. Or if we were to think of the lake as one's psyche, then perhaps from oneself. This is the relationship which determines the character and quality and content of near-death experiences. That is why we're looking at these miracles through a symbolic lens. The next miracle that I want to discuss is 
known as the Feeding of the 5,000, and it's actually the event which directly precedes the walking on the water. I'm now going to read a few verses from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 34 through 44. Quote, As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered five thousand men. End quote. So here we have another miracle of Christ which is taking place on the shores of the lake. And it contains a very interesting foreshadowing of what is to come in the Christian story. We talked about how the fish is a symbol for Christ. And in addition to that, we also have the bread featured in this story. Bread being a symbol for Christ's body, which is broken in the ritual of communion, and an allegory for his sacrifice. Here in this story by the lakeside, he breaks apart these two symbols of himself and shares them amongst 5,000 people. And conceivably there would not be enough to feed everyone, but story says they all ate and they were full. That is the miraculous aspect here that out of very little, there is a great abundance which is created. But I would like to emphasize that if we are looking at this symbolically, he is giving himself in these symbols of the bread and the fish to the people. He creates an abundance out of himself. And that quality of abundance is something we're also going to see in this last miracle which I'm going to read. It is called The Miraculous Catch of Fish. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Quote, Now it came to pass, while the multitudes pressed upon him and heard the word of God, that he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. 
And he sat down and taught the multitudes out of the boat. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answered and said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at thy word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets were breaking. And they beckoned unto their partners in the other boat, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter, when he saw it, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was amazed, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes they had taken. And so were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, for henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left all and followed him. End quote. So it seems like most of the time these miracles are talked about, they are talked about in a context which is usually presented as a literal fact, historical fact that these events happened and these miracles took place. And this may be done in the service of a deeper meaning, of a religious meaning perhaps, but they're held up as a hill to die on for the religious and then subsequently derided as impossible fantasy by those who are scientifically minded. With that said, I would like to try to recontextualize these stories in a way that neither side considers. And that is that, regardless of their historical basis, which I don't know about, these stories at the very least represent statements of symbolic and psychological fact. That these stories and miracles may be contents which emerged unconsciously and autonomously out of the people of the time and were projected upon the rabbi, Jesus. And it's impossible to say where the man began and the myth ended, that he was embodying a, a myth so deep within the human soul that almost doesn't matter whether or not the claims of the tenets of Christianity are literally true or not, because they're practically true. The Christ image is a reality in the human psyche. And that is not to the exclusion of any other religious system. But just as a dream stitches itself together and forces itself upon an individual in the middle of the night, this Christ image, this archetype, made itself objectively manifest in history 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and from there it has spread around the entire globe. The reason that it spread and gained so many followers and has changed so many lives is not due to raw power and domination, 
as the cynics might say. It's not based on oppression or having power over other people, though that is a reality with any human system. But it is spread because it is reflecting a deep truth within the human soul or the human psyche. And that truth is something like asking the question of what is the meeting place of God and man? Assuming God represents something, what does a perfect relation with that look like? How should we act in order to make that real? What would happen if every single action that we took throughout our days, throughout our lives, was perfect? If we did everything right in the right moment and gave up our selfish desires for the will of God, what would the result of all that be? The result is you would get something like Christ, although that is a very loose definition, of course. The Christ symbol is so deep, there aren't enough words to describe it fully or capture it in just a few sentences. But broadly speaking, we might be able to think of it as a psychological state which is possible to achieve. I don't know if we could reach that level of perfection, but it seems as though if it were not possible, then Christ wouldn't have bothered teaching us. That's the whole point of learning and growing and developing, is that hopefully there would be some end goal or some state which could be reached that was like unto Christ. That is the whole essence of his teaching, to become like him. This idea is even suggested by one of the stories we talked about. The fact that Peter, as an ordinary human being, could walk upon the water like Jesus had. That is an intimation that we can be like unto him, or to reach that state of perfect union with God. That process of growth and development into a more perfect union with the divine may be something that we could call salvation. And the determinant of the quality of a near-death experience. Because presumably the moment of death is that meeting with that which God represents. This is where I find it important to emphasize that these miracles and stories we've talked about of Christ and the Sea of Galilee should not be taken literally. Their meaning is way too important to hang upon a physical impossibility because what they suggest is that state of being in union with the divine, let's say, seems to be characterized by a sense of abundance, of a 
creating something out of nothing, of a multiplication of oneself, all for the benefit of the people around you. We saw that in the feeding of the 5,000 and the miraculous catch of fish, that where there was nothing, there grew to be abundance, which fed everyone. If we look at this symbolically, it can mean so much more than if we're limited by a literal interpretation. You can feed people with words or with kind actions, and that can change people, it can change lives, and the ripples of that can propagate outwards indefinitely. The walking on the water also has so many symbolic implications that don't get considered. That that perfect state of being in relationship with God that Christ represents could possibly grant the ability to take things which are amorphous and flowing, ephemeral and watery, things like ideas or intuitions, the psyche itself, and make those things real. That would be to turn heaven into earth. That would be to concretize the psyche and make it real. That could be taking some random idea that came up from God knows where within you and put it into practice. And if it's a good idea, that could change your life, open doors, affect you and the people around you. That is the symbolic implication of this story. That if you have a perfect relationship with God, with the lake, then you have a place to stand, a solid foundation upon your own psyche, and perhaps can even save others who are drowning within theirs. These are just some of the amplifications that we can draw from looking at the relationship between Christ and the lake, and knowing roughly what both of them represent, the part and the whole, the fish and the lake, man and God, then we can start to piece together a rough idea of what that relationship between the two should be and what salvation and damnation have to do with that. Just a quick note before we continue here. I had to re-record the first 40 minutes of this episode due to a technical error and found that in the course of a year recording a podcast episode, my voice has changed. Timbre is a bit different. And so now we are continuing on with older recordings, and I just wanted to point that out so the difference isn't too distracting or jarring or anything. So continuing on now. But in order to show that 
the lake may be connected with ideas of salvation and redemption in a broader human context that is not just exclusive to Christianity. I wanted to take a look at the beliefs surrounding a particular lake in India. It's called Pushkar Lake, and I was quite surprised to see the amount of resonance between the beliefs and practices and rituals surrounding Pushkar Lake and the ideas we saw emerge out of Christ's miracles at the Sea of Galilee. And I hope this will serve to show that not only are the symbolic ideas surrounding lakes common in cross-cultural examples, but perhaps they share the same implications as well of how we should act in relation to these images, what would be a mode of being that they suggest. For instance, that of redemption or damnation. And here, before we start exploring the ideas surrounding Pushkar Lake and Hindu religious thinking, I want to put out my once-per-episode disclaimer that this is a subject, a culture, and a whole religion that has tons of nuance and complex linguistic ideas, philosophical ideas, which go beyond the scope of what I'm able to cover. And I can only touch on little bits here and there and do my best to present it as accurately as I can, but just want to put up the white flag here and say that there's a lot that I don't know and a lot that I cannot represent well. And so there's the grain of salt to take with all this. Okay, so with that in mind, I am now going to read some general information about the lake so we have a foundation of what it is and why it's important, and we can go from there. Quote, Pushkar Lake, or Pushkar Sarovar, is located in the town of Pushkar, an Ajmer district of the Rajasthan state of western India. Pushkar Lake is a sacred lake of the Hindus. The Hindu scriptures describe it as, quote, Tirtha Guru, the perceptor of pilgrimage sites related to a water body and related to the mythology of the creator god Brahma, whose most prominent temple stands in Pushkar. The Pushkar Lake finds mention on coins as early as the 4th century BC. Pushkar Lake is surrounded by 52 bathing ghats, a series of steps leading to the lake, where pilgrims throng in large numbers to take a sacred bath, especially around Kartik Purnima, October to November, when the Pushkar Fair is held. A dip in the sacred lake is believed to cleanse sins and cure skin diseases. Over 500 Hindu temples are situated around the lake precincts. End quote. So there we have some general information about the lake, of where it is and why it's important in a broad sense. One of the things I wanted to emphasize was that they made mention of historical references to the lake going back to the 4th century BC. So it has been a place of significance and sacredness for quite a long time. 
and we learn that it is sacred to the Hindu creator god Brahma. But there was one other reference that they made that I wanted to see if we could shed some light on. One thing that I had to look into and was glad that I did. That was this word, Tirtha. They called the lake a Tirtha Guru. And I wanted to share a bit of what I found about this word because I think it will add a lot of context to our discussion. Quote, Tirtha literally means, quote, a ford, a crossing place in the sense of transition or junction. Tirtha is a spiritual concept in Hinduism, particularly as a pilgrimage site, states Axel Michaels, that is, a holy junction between, quote, worlds that touch and do not touch each other. The word also appears in ancient and medieval Hindu texts to refer to a holy person or a holy text with something that can be a catalyst for transition from one state of existence to another. It is, states Newt Jacobson, anything that has salvific value to a Hindu and includes pilgrimage sites such as mountains or forests or seashore or rivers or ponds, as well as virtues, actions, studies, or state of mind. Tirtha can be an actual physical sacred location in Hindu traditions, or a metaphorical term referring to meditation where the person travels to an intellectual sacred mind state, such as, quote, of truth, forgiveness, kindness, simplicity, and such, end quote. So I found the use of this term Tirtha in conjunction with Pushkar Lake to be fascinating. The term itself means a ford or a crossing over point and could be used in a way to mean the meeting place between two worlds and seems to have lots of complexities and nuances that it's a term that can be used to denote a sacred pilgrimage site, a place that people can go visit, or something that is a little more spiritual, like a text or a person, or even a way of meditation, of a uh, meditating into getting a certain state of mind which connects one with that other world. But I found the use of this word to be particularly salient, especially based on some of the things that we've discussed so far in looking at different lakes around the world in various cultures, how they have had this similar sort of crossing over numinosity about them that certain sacred lakes have this power about them that they can transport one to that other world. That's something that we had just talked about in terms of Christ and his miracles, but is also present in Lamo Lotso, the sacred Tibetan lake that the Buddhists use to find the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, or Lake Fundudzi, as we mentioned, uh, the Vinda people of Southern Africa, which is the home of their ancestors and gods that live within the lake. So this term, Tirtha, is a beautiful way of describing the symbolism that is 
underlying all these different sacred lakes and how they manifest in quite different cultural forms, but share that sense of a meeting place of two worlds, of a point where heaven and earth come together and that we can experience that. And it certainly seems like many people want to, as Pushkar Lake hosts throngs of pilgrims every year that come to take part in its sacred waters. And now I want to find out a little bit more about that specifically, about the religious significance of the lake, its mythology, what pilgrims attempt to do there, what it means what it suggests for how they act in relation to the lake, as we have been talking about what the lake has to do with these ideas of redemption and damnation and how that can inform how we live as well. So to do that, I'm going to read now from the Wikipedia entry on Pushkar Lake talking about the religious significance and what is worshipped there and why. Quote, There are various legends from Hindu epics Ramayana and Mahabharata and the Puranic scriptures which mention the Pushkar Lake and the town of Pushkar surrounding it. According to the Hindu scripture Padma Purana, Brahma saw the demon Vajranaba trying to kill his children and harassing people. He immediately slew the demon with his weapon, the lotus flower. In this process, lotus petals fell on the ground at three places, where springs emerged, creating three lakes. The Pushkar Lake, or Jyeshja Pushkar, greatest or first Pushkar, the Madhya Pushkar, middle Pushkar Lake, and the Kanishta Pushkar, lowest or youngest Pushkar Lake. When Brahma came down to earth, he named the place where the flower, Pushpa, fell from Brahma's hand, Kar, as Pushkar. It is also said that the sacred Sarasvati River merged at Pushkar as five streams. The three lakes were assigned their presiding deities as the Hindu trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, respectively. Brahma then decided to perform a yagna at the place, at the main Pushkar Lake. Just for clarification, a yagna is a kind of fire sacrifice ritual. However, his wife Savitri could not be present at the designated time to perform the essential part of the yagna. Brahma, therefore, married a Gujar, a dominant agricultural race named Gayatri, and completed the yagna with his new consort sitting beside him. However, when Savitri finally arrived at the venue, she found Gayatri sitting next to Brahma in her rightful place. Agitated, she cursed Brahma that he would only be worshipped in Pushkar. As a result of this yagna performed in the presence of all the gods, it is said that a dip in the lake created at this place is credited with holiness, assuring salvation from all sins. It is now one of the five holiest centers of pilgrimage for Hindus. End quote. 
So here we have a bit of background information about the meaning and religious significance of Pushkar Lake, how it came to be and the myth that was associated with its origin. Now, the focus of this episode is about the individual's relation to this image and this symbol of the lake, of how we can interact with it and what our mode of being should be in relation to the lake and the world and perhaps each other. And that might look something like salvation, at least with these positive examples of lake symbolism. However, before we focus on that specifically, I wanted to point out some interesting details about the myth of the origin of Pushkar Lake and Brahma slaying the demon and what that might mean and perhaps add to our discussion and draw some connections to some of the previous cultural examples we've discussed so far. While I'm going to be pointing out similarities between different religions and spiritual beliefs, I at the same time would like you all to keep in mind that these belief systems, no matter what culture I'm talking about, are still very different and I don't want to minimize any differences because there are plenty and I don't want to gloss them over as if saying, oh, they're, everything is just the same religion. I mean, they're quite different and they mean a lot to people, so I don't want to come across like that. But when we take that thousand-foot view, we can see similarities in motifs of symbolic patterns. And they're fascinating to point out because if similar motifs are popping up again and again in vastly different contexts, perhaps that has some meaning for you and me, and perhaps we can see similar things within ourselves. So, in reference to this origin story of Pushkar Lake, we have the creator god Brahma, a principal deity in Hinduism, who is watching this demon Vajranaba kill his children and harass them, and he promptly slays the demon with his weapon, the lotus flower, and petals fall off of the lotus flower and form springs down where they touch the ground, and these springs become the three Pushkar lakes, the main one and the middle one and the smaller one. So here we have a motif of the slaying of a demon which creates something new. Now that is a very common creation myth in a much larger cosmological sense that many cultures feature a creation myth which revolves around the killing of a giant or a dragon or demon or, or some victim which then gets cut up and the pieces become the world and the sea and the sun and moon and stars and so on. So we get a little bit of that in this story, but perhaps on a much smaller scale. And with that in mind, I'd, I want to 
remind us of the story of Nanabozo slaying the great serpent, which is an Ojibwe myth from North America. But the story revolves around the great serpent killing the cousin of Nanabozo, who then is able to lure him out of the lake and slay him with a shot of a bow and arrow. And this then creates a flood. So if we were going to look at these two stories almost grammatically, they look very similar in a way. Though in the Ojibwe myth, the lake already exists and it's the home of the evil spirits, both stories have the same plot points in a way that the hero or god loses a member of his family, whether it's his children or his cousin, thanks to the actions of an evil spirit or demon, the great serpent or Vajranaba. And the hero then slays the evil spirit or demon, and this creates a release of something. And in both cases, it's a release of water. Now, as I mentioned, the particulars and the details are different in these stories that in the story of Pushkar Lake, it is the petals of the lotus flower which fall down upon the earth and create the springs which then fill up to become the lakes. Whereas in the story of Nanabozo, the lake itself floods over and then eventually recedes. But in both cases, the same basic motif is there that this slaying of an evil entity releases the flow of water, the flow of energy, which becomes something sacred and redeeming. And that's the same symbolism that was at play when we were discussing the sacred springs in Ireland, the folk liturgies that surrounded the visitation to these springs and the honoring of particular saints, that the spring represents a coming forth of, of the sacred, of the divine, out of the earth. That's the sacrality of water that we talked about all those examples of cultures around the world that found religious meaning at bodies of water or springs, rivers, lakes, ponds. And the psychological meaning that we discuss surrounding the Nanabozo story, I think, also may have some resonance with this story of Brahma killing the demon and creating Pushkar Lake. That Something about if we look at the demon as a autonomous complex within us that is causing all sorts of problems, let's say trauma or whatnot. It could be anything that has a life of its own and expresses itself in our lives without us controlling it. That if that is able to be dealt with and slain or integrated, it's untangled and made sense of, perhaps, worked through in therapy, what have you, then there is a release of energy that it creates a spring 
or perhaps a flood if there was a lot there. A release of energy within the psyche, which then, as the stories show, can ultimately lead to redemption, or a place of rejuvenation, of, of salvation. That is what the stories suggest, but practically I'm sure there are a lot more steps to be taken and a lot of careful work that has to be done, probably in the context of therapy or some similar medium. But nevertheless, it's fascinating that these stories, so vastly separated by time and space, share such an overlap in the beats or the plot points of characters that essentially perform the same action and get a similar result. That, at least to me, points to some deeper meaning that I think is probably best seen within ourselves, within our own psychology. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about just this little part of this passage on Pushkar Lake, but I just want to emphasize that I don't think these are just cute, made-up stories. They have a meaning and they should be taken seriously and looked for in, in their truth. And a truth that is not physical, per se, but that is psychological, or a truth of the soul. But now to finish up talking about that brief passage we read on Pushkar Lake, there was a brief story about some of the marital intrigue surrounding Brahma and his wife and the yagna that he had to perform there at the lakeside, yagna being a fire sacrifice ritual and needed a partner there and got someone who wasn't his wife and that led to the reason why Pushkar Lake is practically the only place where Brahma is worshipped. There is a temple for Brahma at Pushkar Lake and there are few if none elsewhere. But the passage states that the consequence of this yagna, this sacrifice that Brahma makes, is that any pilgrim can now come and take a dip in the lake and be washed clean of their sins, be saved, essentially. So here we have another data point that we can refer to as we're trying to explore this connection between the idea of salvation and this symbol of the lake. Now, again, I want to reiterate that I am going to be taking a view from 10,000 feet when trying to compare what we learned about Christ in the lake and this example of Pushkar Lake and the connections with salvation and redemption that these are very different religions and I'm going to be zoomed all the way out so we can only see faint symbolic patterns or motifs which are valuable and interesting to compare and talk about but 
At the same time, I do not want to make the case that Christianity and Hinduism are the same thing or don't have differences, that sort of thing. But from this bird's eye view of 10,000 feet, I think there are fascinating comparisons that we can draw that might serve us in this process of amplification that we're undergoing, of trying to understand the connections that the lake holds and the, the different ideas that surround it. And speaking very broadly, if I had to say there was one main theme that was connecting these two stories together, connecting them to salvation, I would say that main theme is the idea of sacrifice. In the story of Christ's miracles at the Sea of Galilee, we have the idea of sacrifice emerging out of Christ himself, that he is God's own sacrifice, his only son, that through Christ's connection with God the Father, he is able to perform these miracles and teach self-sacrifice, universal love, compassion, those sorts of things, and is able to do so through an embodied sort of parable in these miracles at the lake, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water. These are the things that perhaps are possible when one sacrifices one's egoic desires to God things that you want as opposed to God's will to be done. That perhaps is a essence of what Christ taught to become like him, to become a sacrifice. And by doing so, apparently one is saved. In connection with the lake, we have in the feeding of the multitudes, the disciples sacrificing a few loaves and fish and thereby feeding thousands of people, saving them from hunger as a brief example of how this imagery of what Christ represents of sacrifice can have an effect on the world and the people around you, can create abundance That seems to be the basic principle that is being expressed by this miracle. On the other hand, we have the idea of sacrifice emerging at Pushkar Lake, that once the lake was formed, Brahma consecrated it, sanctified it, made it a holy place by performing a yagna. There's a lot to be said about what a yagna is, but From what I can tell, in the most basic terms, it is a ritual involving a sacrifice into a fire for the gods. And it seems as though the most common sacrifices were food in the form of ghee or milk, grain or cakes. And by putting these sacrifices into the fire, In the ritual of the yagna, Brahma is able to transform Pushkar Lake into a place in which pilgrims can be washed clean of their sins to find salvation. 
it's very interesting to note the difference between these two examples. On the one hand, we have Christ creating food through a sacrifice. And on the other hand, we have Brahma destroying food as a sacrifice. And the result in both cases appears to be salvation. Again, this is speaking very generally at the broadest possible scale because when you get down into the nitty-gritty even, ideas of sin and salvation mean different things in the context of Christianity and Hinduism. And while that difference is interesting to get into and compare, I think that is a bit beyond the scope of what we're attempting to do here. Here we are at that 10,000-foot view where we are trying to extract out the ideas of what our relationship to the, this image of the lake should be as it can ultimately appear in someone's near-death experience as a heavenly lake of paradise or, as we will talk about, a fiery lake of hell. And so from what I can tell, based on our discussion of Christ in the Sea of Galilee and Brahma and Pushkar Lake, we have two different modes of relating to what the lake represents. One mode as characterized by the Christian miracles is a movement out of the lake. And the other mode, as appears to us in the ritual surrounding Pushkar Lake is a movement in to the lake. In the first case, we have Christ pulling out a plethora of fish into the boats where previously no one had been able to catch any. We have Christ pulling Peter out of the water after he was briefly walking on it and began to sink. In the second case, we have pilgrims flocking to what is one of the most sacred places in India, Pushkar Lake, to take a dip or a holy bath in the waters and thereby remove one's sins and balance out one's karma. So we have two movements, to come out of the lake or to go into the lake. And these perhaps may represent two different modes of relating to what the lake represents. Both movements, in or out, appear to be enabled or available due to sacrifice in one form or another. That appears to be the principle by which either movement is possible. And I think a practical and general way of thinking about these two movements might be something like extroversion and introversion, or the relation to an object on the outside in the world, or the relation to an object on the inside within us. That seems to be the key difference that emerges between these two examples of the lake in Christianity and Hinduism, and I might say very, very broadly, 
that difference is reflective in the religions as such, that Christianity seems to be more predisposed towards the outer workings of charity and acts of service, community, missionary work, that sort of thing. Whereas Hinduism leans towards the inner work of yoga and meditation, moksha and the liberation from the cycle of death and rebirth. As I said, these are very general observations. There is monasticism and meditation in Christianity, and there is also charitable work and acts of service in in Hinduism, and so that's not exclusive or absolute in any way. But it seems as though that Christianity is slightly more extroverted in its orientation, and Hinduism seems to be a bit more introverted in its leanings. And it is interesting how that dichotomy emerges from just looking at the stories surrounding these two sacred lakes or spiritually important lakes of the Sea of Galilee and Pushkar Lake. One represents pulling salvation out of the lake and the other represents attaining salvation by going into the lake. And I think that's a very poignant sort of thing to notice that we have these two ways of orienting ourselves towards life and towards other people and towards ourselves. And that is modeled for us in just looking at this symbol of the lake. And as I said, it's not entirely exclusive. Like Christianity has the rite of baptism. And while that is symbol of going into the water and has some of the same overtones as we saw in the ritual at Pushkar Lake. It's usually done in a river, which may have some symbolic meaning for Christianity as being more flowing or eschatological, heading towards a, an end point, towards Judgment Day, whereas in the Hindu case of Bathing in this lake, it's more still. It's the eternal cycle of death and rebirth. It's not going to some end point, but is always circling around. So despite the ambiguities that we've seen here in looking at the action of going into the water or coming out of the water, I think this dichotomy holds true of difference between extroversion and introversion. That even in a Christian ritual such as baptism that originally was performed by going into a river and being immersed in the water, now I would say most people who are baptized have the water taken out and brought to them. And the meaning may still be the same, but it is done in an extroverted sort of form in relation to the original lake or river or wherever the holy consecrated water came from. But overall, the ideas we're amplifying out of the symbol of the lake look something like that sacrifice is the means by which one can attain salvation either through 
relation to the external world in the form of people and community and acts of service or relation to the inner world through meditation and yoga, contemplation. Ideally, one does both in different amounts at different times, but both seem to be equally valid from the religious ideas that we have seen thus far. And on a psychological level, I want us to keep in mind what we have talked about in the first episode of what the lake represents, that it can be the land of the dead, of the home of the gods, that sort of thing, but also one's own unconscious. And so if we look at it from that angle, then these two movements represent encountering the psyche out in the world in projected form or within oneself in the introjected form. And even what may sound like such a secular framing, the same orientation still applies that we have to sacrifice and learn from these psychological contents from within and without in order to grow and become more of who we are. As we conclude talking about the ideas of salvation and redemption in relation to lake symbolism, there was one more passage I wanted to share from what I had learned about Pushkar Lake, and this is going to transition us nicely into a ambiguous figure that can both help or harm. We're going to be talking about the Lady of the Lake in Arthurian mythology, but I was surprised to find out that in relation to Pushkar Lake, there was a story of a ancient Hindu sage by the name of Vishwamitra, and this is a story which bears some resemblance to what we're going to end up talking about with the ambiguous Lady of the Lake. Quote, the Ramayana mentions that Vishwamitra performed penance at Pushkar Lake for a thousand years. In spite of Brahma appearing before him and granting him the higher status of a rishi instead of a royal sage, Vishwamitra continued his penance, but the celestial nymph Aspara, Menaka, came to the lake to take a bath. Vishwamitra was enamored by her beauty and they decided to live together in pursuit of pleasure for ten years. Then Vishwamitra realized that his main activity of penance was disturbed. He therefore took leave of Manaka and went away to the north to continue his meditation. End quote. I wanted to include this story because it contains a motif which we see all over in religious and mythological stories from around the world. It's that of a water nymph or spirit or enchantress in the water who seduces a man. One of the first examples that comes to mind of this motif is that of the sirens of Greek mythology, the half-bird, half-human female creatures which lured sailors to their island through their beautiful singing, and that often led to their demise. And so this pattern is very widespread among mythological stories. 
And we have it here in this story of Vishwamitra and Menaka, although it has a slightly more positive ending. But this motif of the sorceress or the goddess is very intimately related to the image of the lake. And that's something we are going to explore by looking at the figure known as the Lady of the Lake in the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And what we will see is the way she operates has both a very helpful and positive side and also a harmful and negative and dangerous side. And so this is going to be a transition for us as we try to explore the range between the lake's association with salvation all the way to its association with damnation. So to get us started with this mysterious lady of the lake, I am just going to read a general overview of who she is and where she's come from and what role she plays in these medieval legends. Quote, the Lady of the Lake is a name or title used by several fairy-like enchantresses in the matter of Britain, the body of medieval literature and mythology associated with the legend of King Arthur. They play pivotal roles in many stories, including providing Arthur with the sword Excalibur, eliminating Merlin, raising Lancelot after the death of his father, and helping to take the dying Arthur to Avalon. Different sorceresses known as the Lady of the Lake appear concurrently as separate characters in some versions of the legend since at least the post-Vulgate cycle, and consequently the seminal Le Mort d'Arthur, with the latter describing them as a hierarchical group, while some texts also give this title to either Morgan or her sister. End quote. Okay. So now let's see how this figure of the Lady of the Lake can start to inform our discussion of salvation and damnation in regards to the symbol of the lake. As mentioned previously in the passage I read, she is quite an important character in many of the events that take place in the myths surrounding King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, such as giving King Arthur his sword Excalibur, or being involved in the disappearance of the wizard Merlin. The passage also stated that she is a character that often has many names and may actually be separate characters that get lumped in together under this title of the Lady of the Lake. For instance, there is a character known as Nimue, there is another character known as Vivian. Sometimes these characters seem to be identical, other times they are separate. The fairy Morgan also gets the title of the Lady of the Lake at times, or her sister. And so it is ultimately sort of unclear who we're talking about unless it's in reference to a specific story by a specific writer, and I guess the Arthurian legends were told in, in prose cycles where certain writers would pick them up and continue them, and then a, a different author would have 
a slightly different version and pick up from a certain place and continue on. And so it's a whole big jumbled mess in a way, but that gives us a bit of a advantage, so to speak, because we get to see how different people thought about the same material and we're getting a bird's eye view from many different viewpoints of this symbolic legend and myth, which ultimately bears resonance to our own psychology in certain motifs and patterns. So the fact that this title of Lady of the Lake has been attached to several different characters and clearly is a, a figure of great importance in events that happen, it points to the fact that it is something archetypal and very deeply embedded within us, deeply symbolic. The Lady of the Lake is so meaningful and charged with power and symbolism that no one character can hold on to that title. It goes beyond a single character into many figures and perhaps into us as well. As an example of this, I wanted to share a little fact that I found interesting in which I actually mentioned quite early on in the first episode of this series. Quote, The full French name of the University of Notre Dame, founded in 1842, is Notre Dame du Lac. This is translated as Our Lady of the Lake making reference to Mary, mother of Jesus, as the Lady of the Lake, evidencing fusion between Arthurian legend and Middle Christian history. End quote. This figure of the Lady of the Lake is so deeply archetypal that it even gets associated with the Virgin Mary, the closest thing that Christianity has to a goddess. And that makes complete sense given the time and context that these stories and legends are coming from, from medieval Europe, a time where Christianity was all-powerful and society was heavily male-dominated. And when you have both a religion and culture which are extremely patriarchal in orientation, it makes complete sense that there would arise in legends and myths from the unconscious a compensation, a powerful female figure who has her fingers on all the major events that take place. In a little bit, I'm going to quote from a book by Emma Jung entitled The Grail Legend, and in it she talks about how many of the Stories and adventures that happen with the Knights of the Round Table and King Arthur and the Holy Grail all have to do with the integration of the, the feminine into a highly masculine patriarchal society. How does one actually start to reach across that divide? This was the beginning of the time of courtly love and what she argues is that these stories show psychologically a coming to grips, a confrontation and integration with the feminine. 
With that in mind, it's no wonder that this figure of the Lady of the Lake has such power in these stories and can shift from one character to another and sometimes be identical or sometimes be separate characters who come and go. She represents a archetype that is deeply constellated in the psyche of the medieval European Christian man. And perhaps we in the West are still grappling with this constellation even today. So, as we mentioned, not only is the character of the Lady of the Lake ambiguous in terms of who claims to be the actual Lady of the Lake, we have several individuals who go by that title. Not only that, but also her actions are ambiguous in terms of their morality and their leaning towards good or towards evil. And we're going to explore this ambiguity a little bit to try to tease out what actions in regards to this figure of the Lady of the Lake look more like redemption and which actions look more like damnation because we have both that occur with this particular figure. We will begin with the positive aspects of this Lady of the Lake character and we will attempt to amplify what actions, what mindset, what worldview is associated with her acting in a positive, helpful, redemptive sort of way. And to do so, we are going to look at her role in the story of Lancelot, as well as her role in King Arthur's story of gaining the sword Excalibur. So we are going to read from the Wikipedia entry on the Lady of the Lake and begin with Lancelot's story. Quote, in the Lancelot Grail prose cycle, the lady resides in an otherworldly, enchanted realm, the entry to which is disguised as an illusion of a lake. There she raises Lancelot from his infancy following the death of his father, King Ban, teaching Lancelot arts and writing, infusing him with wisdom and courage, and overseeing his training to become an unsurpassed warrior. All this takes her only a few years in the human world. Afterwards, she sends off the adolescent Lancelot to King Arthur's court as the nameless White Knight, related to her own affinity with the color white. Through much of the prose Lancelot proper, the lady keeps aiding Lancelot in various ways during his early adventures to become a famed knight and discover his true identity usually acting through her maidens serving as her agents and messengers. She gives him her magical gifts, including a magic ring of protection against enchantments and a manner similar in that to his fairy protectress in Cretien's version. Later, she also works to actively encourage Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship and its consummation. This includes sending Guinevere a symbolically illustrated magic shield, the crack in which closes up after the queen finally spends her first night with Lancelot, and furthermore personally arrives to restore Lancelot to sanity during some of his recurring fits of madness. End quote. 
So before we start to dissect and talk about what all that may mean, I wanted to continue on and briefly read about the Lady of the Lake's involvement with King Arthur, and in particular her role in providing him with the sword known as Excalibur. Quote, Another unnamed Lady of the Lake appears in the post-Vulgate tradition to bestow the magic sword Excalibur from Avalon to Arthur in a now iconic scene. She is presented as a mysterious early benefactor of King Arthur, who is directed and led to her by Merlin, granting him Excalibur and its special scabbard after his original unnamed sword is damaged in the fight against King Pellinore. This takes place during the time when Merlin is still at Arthur's side, and prior to the introduction of Vivian in the same story. In Thomas Mallory's 15th century compilation of Arthurian stories, the first Lady of the Lake remains unnamed besides this epithet. When the young King Arthur and his mentor Merlin first go to meet her at a lake, she holds his replacement Excalibur, the original sword from the stone having been recently broken in battle, out of the water and offers it to Arthur if he promises to fulfill any request from her later, to which he agrees. End quote. Okay. So, in order to start talking about these two examples that we've mentioned, I'm going to have to speak somewhat generally because the material that we're dealing with is so vast in its scope and details that it really requires a great depth of study, which I unfortunately am not able to do. But I don't think that will hinder what we are trying to accomplish here, because in many ways the Arthurian legend and Knights of the Round Table have seeped into our culture and are very much alive in their influence today. And our purpose here is to look at the ethical and moral actions of these characters in relation to this figure known as the Lady of the Lake, to see what their implications can mean for our own actions and what we can understand about this image of the lake and its symbolism and how it appears as an autonomous symbol within us and also within near-death experiences. With that in mind, what we see in these two examples of the Lady of the Lake is her acting in a very positive and beneficial and nurturing sort of way. And that is in relation to these two famous heroes, Lancelot and King Arthur. And she serves to help them along their way towards their destinies. And she does that in many different ways for both of them. For Lancelot, she raises and nurtures and teaches him. She raises him in this enchanted realm and teaches him martial arts and how to be a warrior and assists him through magic objects or messengers or even personally appearing to restore him from his madness in certain instances. 
she quite literally sends him on his path to become a knight and guides him throughout the whole process. And we see a similar, though less involved, sort of relationship when it comes to King Arthur, when he needs a replacement for his broken sword she bestows the sword Excalibur, a hand reaching up from the water to give him his weapon. So I think some broad and tentative conclusions we might be able to draw from this is that this figure and this symbol of the lake responds positively to deeds and actions which are deemed heroic. These two figures of Lancelot and King Arthur are the emblems, the, the symbols themselves of the hero, of the perfect knight who acts courageously and with wisdom and bravery defeats the evil that invades the land, saves the damsel in distress, all those tropes and cliches that we're so used to. That is what we're dealing with in, in, in utero, essentially, with these stories. This is the birth of some of the deepest heroic conceptions we have in the, in the West. These characters and these legends are crucial to the development of what it means to be a hero, the fruits of which we live with today in our own heroic conceptions. And so what I've got from these examples is something like the symbol of the lake and it, particularly this figure of a lady, a goddess, an enchantress, a sorceress in the lake responds positively to the heroic pursuit, to the virtues and morals that are at least idealized in the form of a medieval knight, someone who protects the good and, and defeats evil. Now, of course, that is a caricature and not something that you or I can really do in totality. We can try to live by a similar sort of code of ethics of attempting to do the right thing but obviously that is an ideal which can never be reached. So we have to take all of this with a grain of salt when we're trying to find connections. But at the very least, it seems like the virtues and the goodness that seems to be espoused by religious teachings such as those of Christ and of Brahma in the Hindu case, seem to be aligned with the idea that one's moral actions, when they are oriented in that sort of virtuous way, tend to receive a positive response from within and without. So although we're using this prism of literature and legend to tease out what the ideal mode of being is to receive a positive reaction from this image of the lake 
it seems to line up quite well with the things that we discussed previously. And this is important because the images in near-death experiences and our own inner phenomena, at the very least, seem to be autonomous. And therefore, we have to act in relation to them. And the actions that receive positive blessings or reinforcements from them are probably ones that will result in better subjective experience in life and perhaps in death. So we have this loose sort of idea that heroic actions and going along with one's destiny and chivalry and virtue will result in a positive form of the lake, of the lady of the lake, and take a role as something that helps and nurtures and fosters and assists in difficult times. And psychologically, that would be the, the helpful role that the unconscious can play in our day-to-day lives. Our psyche can assist us through a helpful tip in a difficult situation, a bright idea that comes out of nowhere, a loving and wonderful dream which changes our mood, that sort of thing. With all that said, though, we're left with some questions. Like I said, these ideals are somewhat caricatures of the perfect night and the heroic adventure and that sort of thing, which doesn't really do us much good. We are inundated with those stories in (laughs) pretty much every movie and TV show that we watch, but there's a lot more gray area to our day-to-day lives and the behaviors and actions that we have to choose every day. But the story itself seems to deal with this in a very clever way, in a way that is clear that these legends and stories were being mediated and spawned by the unconscious compensation of the time. And we can start to see this in how the Lady of the Lake plays a role in the affair between Lancelot and King Arthur's wife, Queen Guinevere. This affair ends up being an extremely important element of the plot and the whole course of the Arthurian story. And while there are many details and subplots and stories that occur within this overarching narrative, the main gist of the story, as far as I can tell, is that this betrayal on the part of Lancelot, this adultery that he commits, ends up resulting in the dissolution of the Knights of the Round Table and ultimately the fall of Camelot and Arthur's kingdom. The affair causes a fallout between Lancelot and King Arthur, which results in a civil war between Lancelot and his fellow knights and Arthur and the knights that are loyal to him. And eventually this war is exploited by a figure known as Mordred, the bastard son of King Arthur who takes the throne and... This all results in the fatal wounding of King Arthur. So that is a 
basic overview, probably very basic, of what I understand the events to be in the amalgamation of the different legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, of what ends up happening. But throughout all this, the Lady of the Lake plays an extremely important role in all the major events that occur, for good and for bad. And just to illustrate this, I wanted to read another passage from her Wikipedia to start to get a sense of her importance and begin the discussion about how her moral ambiguity shows itself in the course of these events and how she can also be seen in a very malevolent sort of light. This passage will refer to the Lady of the Lake by the name Nineveh. Quote, In an analysis by Kenneth Hodges, Nineveh appears through the story as the chivalric code changes, hinting to the reader that something new will happen in order to help the author achieve the wanted interpretation of the Arthurian legend. Each time the lady reappears in Le Mort d'Arthur, it is at a pivotal moment of the episode, establishing the importance of her character within Arthurian literature, as she transcends any notoriety attached to her character by aiding Arthur and other knights to succeed in their endeavors, subtly helping sway the court in the right direction. According to Hodges, when Mallory was looking at other texts to find inspiration, he chose the best aspects of all the other Lady of the Lake characters, making her pragmatic, compassionate, clever, and strong-willed. However, Nineveh's character is often seen as still very ambiguous by other scholars. As summarized by Amy S. Kaufman, quote, Though Nineveh is sometimes friendly to Arthur and his knights, she is equally liable to act in her own interest. She can also be selfish, ruthless, desiring, and capricious. She has been identified as deceptive and anti-patriarchal, equally as often as she has been cast as benevolent aid to Arthur's court, or even the literary descendant of protective goddesses. End quote. So what that passage seems to suggest is that whenever the Lady of the Lake appears in the course of the story, there follows a change in the code of chivalry, in the interpretation of events that signals to the reader that something is shifting or changing, and these are quite important moments. And moreover, it went on to talk about how while the Lady of the Lake is often seen as beneficial in a nurturing and positive light, she also can act in her own self-interest, or deceptively, or ruthlessly. And so, ultimately, she appears to be a morally ambiguous character, while still being very important to the story. And that is something that I want to focus in on now. This all raised a question for me which I wanted to try to figure out with you all. If the story suggests to receive the benefits of the Lady of the Lake and what she represents, that we need to act heroically and valiantly, perfect like a knight in shining armor, that caricature that I mentioned before, 
then why would the Lady of the Lake encourage Lancelot to commit adultery? Earlier we read about how she actively fostered the affair between Lancelot and Queen Guinevere, and then I spoke about the disastrous consequences that came of it, the downfall of the Knights of the Round Table and the destruction of Arthur's kingdom. So by this occurrence, it seems as though the answer that the Arthurian legend had come up with of chivalry and idealism and perfection, that answer was wrong. There was something that was not included that led to the downfall of the whole kingdom, the whole story. And this even may give us some insight into some of our earlier speculations about the relationship between Christ and the lake and what that suggests for us and how we can act and be in the world. We had talked about the idea of perfection and closeness to God as creating abundance and perhaps even miracles, although I had pointed out that that perfection is not attainable. And this story and this event that occurs with the Lady of the Lake and her showing her darker side seems to reinforce that. Perfection is not attainable. And that if you try to reach for that and do not do so wisely and carefully, then misfortune will follow. Just to give you some idea of the perfection that Lancelot was striving for, that ultimately led to his fate, I found a passage which draws a connection between Lancelot and the figure of Christ. Quote, Lancelot is often tied to the Christian themes within Arthurian legend. Lancelot's quest for Guinevere and Lancelot, the knight of the cart, is similar to Christ's quest for the human soul. His adventure among the tombs is described in terms that suggest Christ's harrowing of hell and resurrection. He effortlessly lifts the lid off the sarcophagus, which bears an inscription foretelling his freeing of the captives. End quote. That was just a quick passage from the Wikipedia entry on Lancelot, but I think was useful in drawing that comparison between him and Christ. And based on how Lancelot's story unfolds, shows that a human being cannot reach that level of perfection that Christ embodies. And this lines up quite well with the idea offered up by a few of the Jungian analysts who looked at the Arthurian legends and myths as a compensation to what was not included in the Christian story, a grappling of the medieval mind with the perfection and unattainable morality imposed by a religion that was born about a thousand years before. It is kind of wild that these old religious stories don't get any update, that they don't get added to or, or expanded in any way. And Marie-Louise von Franz and Emma Jung, who worked on the Grail legend and the Arthurian myths, saw them almost as a added 
bonus to the Christian story, a speculation, a furthering of the original myth of Christ and an attempt to include something that was missing in the story. What was that? We're asking the same question in regards to what happened with Lancelot and why the Lady of the Lake would entice him into adultery. What was missing? The answer seems to be the Holy Grail. And that can be a lot of things in its symbolic amplifications. It's matter. It is something that is able to hold and shape the blood of Christ. It is the receptive. That is essentially the feminine. Mother Earth. Matter, the word itself, etymologically is coming from mater, which means mother in Latin. And so all of this is circling around the inclusion of the body and matter and the feminine into the Christian story in which they are notably missing and or dismissed and rejected. And that problem has continued up to this very day where we see the revenge of matter in the form of materialism and sort of nihilistic, anti-spiritual attitude. The polar opposite of the naive, spiritually idealistic attitude that Lancelot had. And both are wrong. Our human experience includes both matter and psyche, matter and spirit, and we have to find a way to balance those opposing factors. Half of the world's population is female, and yet the trinity is exclusively male. That is the problem that medieval legends of the Grail and King Arthur were trying to solve, were trying to chip away at, to, to integrate, albeit unconsciously. To illustrate this, I wanted to read another quick passage from the Wikipedia entry on Lancelot, just to show the nature of the integration that we're talking about. Quote, Lancelot dedicates his deeds to his lady Guinevere, acting in her name as her knight. At one point, he goes mad when he is led to believe that Guinevere doubts his love until he is found and healed by the Lady of the Lake. Another instance of Lancelot temporarily losing his mind occurs during his brief imprisonment by Camille, after which he is cured by the Lady of the Lake as well. The motif of his recurring fits of madness, especially in presence of sexually charged women, and suicidal tendencies, usually relating to the false or real news of the death of either Gawain or Galahad, return often throughout the Vulgate, and sometimes in other versions as well. End quote. So it seems as though Lancelot is possessed by the feminine, driven mad by certain women and the situation with Guinevere and with others, and is ultimately restored 
to health by the Lady of the Lake. This seems to show a split in the image of the feminine between the positive, nurturing, maternal side and then perhaps the lustful, romantic, more sensual side. That these two opposites are intention and cause a fit of madness to take over Lancelot. And this makes sense given the climate of the time and culture that these stories were coming from, of the strict morality and ethical purity imposed by Christianity and the interpretation and instantiation of it in medieval Europe that didn't have a place for the body and for sensuality, romantic love. And that was a huge factor in a lot of these stories, the development of the idea of chivalry and how a knight should act in in fighting for his lady or a damsel in distress, that sort of thing. We can trace those ideas back to this time. And although all the ideas and ways of being that were cultivated in these stories were hugely impactful and resonate with us even today, ultimately their solution was not sufficient. Lancelot was known as the White Knight, and it's fairly ironic that that term is used nowadays at times in a derogatory way to refer to a man who acts noble and chivalrous only in order to sleep with women. It's a ruse, it's an act. And just to bring us back to home base here for a second, the reason we're talking about this split in the image of the feminine which drives Lancelot mad is because it is reflective of the split in the image of the lake into the blissful paradise and into the cauldron of brimstone and fire. And salvation and damnation, how our actions can lead us to experience one of those two states of being. And so we have this powerful figure that changes names but is known by the title of Lady of the Lake, that has her fingers on all these major events and influences the ultimate outcome of the story. She is nurturing and beneficent to those who exhibit courage and bravery and heroism, but ultimately only up to a point. And there's a certain point where that which is not included, feminine, Materiality, the human experience as we actually live and breathe it, not some heroic fairy tale idealism in our heads, but what we actually have to deal with day to day, that must be included or things go awry. And that is where we see her dark side come out. To further illustrate this, I want to touch upon the Lady of the Lake's involvement with Merlin and his fate. Merlin was allegedly the son of the devil. He was a wise magician and wild man who advised King Arthur and served as another layer of complexity in this story which was grappling with the strict morality of Christianity at that time. 
And this is what happens to Merlin. Quote, In the Vulgate Merlin, Vivian refuses to give Merlin, who at this time is already old, but appears to her in the guise of a handsome young man, her love, until he has taught her all his secrets, after which she uses her power to seal him by making him sleep forever. The post-Vulgate revision changes it into Vivian causing Merlin's death out of her hatred and fear of him. Though Merlin knows beforehand that this will happen due to his power of foresight, he is unable to counteract her because of the, quote, truth this ability of foresight holds. He decides to do nothing for his situation other than continue to teach her his secrets until she takes the opportunity to get rid of him. She then entraps him and entombs him within a tree, in a hole underneath a large stone, or inside a cave, depending on the version of this story as told in the different texts. End quote. So it should be quite clear now in the overall focus of this episode that we are getting into the idea of damnation and its association with the lake. And I think that is abundantly clear from Merlin's fate in the passage that we just read. The Lady of the Lake uses his own magic against him and traps him in a stone, in a cave, in a tree, all which can be seen as symbolic offshoots of the idea of hell, to be trapped or entombed within the earth. Now, classically, we associate damnation with the committing of a sin. In Lancelot's case, we could say it was a naive and idealistic quest for perfection that caused his fate. But what was Merlin's sin? In order to dive into this, I am going to read a couple passages from the Grail Legend, a book by Emma Jung, who was examining the legend of the Grail and the Arthurian myths from a psychoanalytic Jungian perspective. And it is quite illuminating to see how she views what happens with Merlin in terms of a psychological and spiritual sort of meaning. And just a quick note for clarity before we begin. Emma Jung is going to make reference to a term called Eros, E-R-O-S. And in Jungian thinking, that is often used to denote the feminine aspect of relationship and connection, the realm of Eros as opposed to the masculine logos. And a simple way to think about it is that Eros connects it is relationship, whereas Logos divides. It's a sword which discriminates and cuts things apart for clarification, for discernment. So one needs both Eros and Logos in one's life. But that's just a brief footnote before we get started. This is coming from the final chapter of the book, which is called The Disappearance of Merlin. Quote, 
It is to some extent perhaps an expression of this unsolved problem of matter and spirit that Merlin, like Percival, also withdraws from the world. As a creature of opposing origins, equipped with both divine and demonic qualities, he is indeed the original man in need of redemption, the archetype of the Anthropos. Either he disappears more and more into the wilderness of the forest, or he allows himself, according to the Breton tales, to be bewitched by Vivian, the fairy who so captivates him by means of his own love spell that he is unable to return to the human world. The legends which center round Merlin are resolved through one of two extreme solutions. According to some versions, Geoffrey of Monmouth and Robert de Boron, Merlin completely renounces the realm of Venus, while in others he falls into the fairy's power for all time. This latter figure is also called La Dame du Lac, the Lady of the Lake, or Morgana, a name which most authorities trace back to the Celtic water goddess, Morgan. The fairy is also related to Aphrodite, the foam-born, and to Venus, because at a later date her magic realm was compared with the Venusberg. Her Breton sister is traced back to Diana, while Morgan seems, rather, to be related to the Celtic Epona. Obviously, it is always a case of the same archetype, in connection with which the fairy receives now more positive, now more negative traits. The negative evaluation of the sprite's union with Merlin is connected with the Christian prejudice towards the realm of Eros, from which it follows that the masculine and feminine are able to oppose each other only in a battle for power. This induces intellectual suppression of Eros on the part of the masculine and imprisoning possessiveness on the part of the feminine. This prejudice was also conducive, in the later literature, to Merlin's inclusion in anti-feminist writings and his portrayal as the victim of an evil woman. End quote. Okay, so we went into reading this passage with the question in mind of what was Merlin's sin that resulted in his quote-unquote damnation by the Lady of the Lake be trapped and entombed within a cave or a stone or a tree and to disappear, essentially. And I think that passage gave us a lot of material to think about and to chew on here. The sin, as far as Emma Jung lays out, seems to be in line with that of Lancelot in a way that Merlin represents the inability to integrate and to come to terms with the feminine as is symptomatic of the Christian mindset of the time. Lancelot's quest for perfect chivalrous knighthood seemed to lack a healthy relation to the feminine and to materiality and to the body. And here, too, Merlin seems to become a victim of the same problem, as Emma Jung writes that he is indicative of the Christian prejudice of the time, 
the relations between male and female only being that of a battle for power and a unhealthy suspicion of the feminine and of matter and the body. And she writes that he would later be included in writings against the feminine as a man who fell prey to an evil woman. This suspicion against the feminine will eventually develop culturally into outright madness in the form of witch hunts and burning women at the stake who are suspected of engaging in witchcraft. It's absolutely horrific that such Christian high-minded people could do something so barbaric. But they did this in accordance with the age-old fact that that which we do not understand we will act out unconsciously. It's almost as if medieval Europe could not reconcile or integrate its ancient pagan earth goddesses with this new male-centered religion of Christ and the Trinity, and many innocent women had to pay the price for that. And so I think it's important to keep in mind when we're speaking of the sins of these characters, such as Lancelot and Merlin, that we're not so much talking about the sins of the characters themselves, but the minds of the men in whom they existed at the time. In the Christian man of the medieval era who was dealing with these issues and these problems of trying to form a connection with the feminine side of life. And so these characters of Lancelot and Merlin bear those prejudices, whether fairly or unfairly. I found an excellent passage in a book by Marie-Louise von Franz called Individuation in Fairy Tales, which kind of lays out this issue of medieval Christianity and the feminine in fairly clear terms, and I thought it might be helpful for our discussion. Quote, We might see in this a general feature of Christian mythology, where from the beginning with Eve and the snake in paradise, it was thought that the feminine element was closer to the dark side of life, closer to evil, and more open to evil inspirations. At least since the spread of the myth of the Virgin Mary, however, the feminine is also the rescuing symbol. Thus, in many hymns about the Virgin Mary, it is said that she put right what her sister Eve did wrong. Or, for instance, that Eve brought death and sin into the world, while Mary rescued us from death and sin by giving birth to the Savior. Therefore, at least in our civilization, the feminine element is in one way closer to the dark side and evil in general, but is looked on as being sometimes also the redeeming thing. For instance, the Virgin Mary is responsible for the fact that God became man, so if you think that this is a deterioration, it is not so thought of, but you could think of it in that way, then you can say that just because she pulled God down into the human realms, she brought salvation. So the feminine element is, for better or for worse, looked on as being closer to darkness, closer to the human element, 
closer to the less spiritual, less absolute. In the Middle Ages, the Virgin Mary was looked on as being specially friendly to sinners, taking them under her big cloak. When God is a bit too severe and wants to condemn them, she just puts her cloak over them and says, oh well, they are just my children. She protects them in this way from the evil, revengeful side of God. Mary is human, so she can understand a bit better if we misbehave. She is not so far away and can look at things from a more relative standpoint, and that is why she puts in a good word for us. She says to God, Well, you cannot be so strict with those anthropoids down there on earth. That is the typical idea of the feminine element as reconciling the divine with the human, the spiritual with the earthly, good and evil. End quote. Okay, so I thought that was a pretty good summary of some of the things that we've been discussing, such as the split in the image of the feminine that we are examining in this medieval Arthurian context, and particularly its association with the Lady of the Lake, because this is indicative of the symbol of the lake itself. And I think there's a wonderful resonance here between what Von Franz writes about the Virgin Mary as a positive motherly figure towards sinners and those aspects that we've seen in the Lady of the Lake thus far as a nurturing mother to Lancelot who helps him along his way and restores him, heals him from his madness. And this lines up perfectly with what we mentioned previously, the fact that the Virgin Mary sometimes has this loose association with the Lady of the Lake, such as in the title of Notre Dame du Lac, as we had talked about. So we see this similarity in the image that is constellated here in association with the lake. And we even saw the Virgin Mary appear in connection with the lake in a near-death experience that we began the previous episode with and talking about how this vision of a dark lake and a woman's unborn daughter appeared as a result of praying to the Virgin Mary. And so this imagery is very much alive, and I think it's helpful to try to dig down to its roots and to examine its opposite, to look at its other half, which is the dark, thonic, Earth Mother, the pagan side of the equation that has gotten left out of the Christian story. That is the part that causes these issues in the Arthurian myths that dooms Lancelot and Merlin to their fates. Von Franz points to the association of Eve and the feminine with evil at the very outset of the Christian story. It was Eve that ultimately led us out of the paradise, out of the garden, but perhaps there's a value in that that gets rejected or pushed aside by the usual Christian outlook. Whereas von Franz notes that it is also the feminine that gives rise to the Savior, at least symbolically. In this connection, it is also interesting to point out that 
while the Lady of the Lake is connected symbolically with the Virgin Mary in her motherly, beneficent, positive aspect, as we talked about. Her various names connect her back to pagan Celtic goddesses, such as Mwyrgen, or Epona, or Morgana. For example, the name Mwyrgen refers back to a figure known as Liban in Old Irish. Liban means the ideal of women, or the paragon of women, literally an archetype. And the legend refers back to a woman whose town was flooded by a great lake and whose family was killed. And she managed to stay alive at the bottom of this lake for a year until she was turned into a mermaid. And then she was free to roam the seas for hundreds of years until she became a saint. She also had the name Wurgen, which means seaborn. And then there are also figures known as Morgans, which are essentially sirens in the tales of the Bretons. They would reside in caves along the coast or the mouths of rivers, and they would attract young men through their singing and their beauty and drag them down to the bottoms of the water and drown them. Both of these names of Morgan and the Morgans are the etymological roots of the name Morgana, which is the Lady of the Lake, or the fairy who entombs and steals the powers of Merlin. So we have all of these associations and offshoots of the central image of the Lady of the Lake. We have the Virgin Mary and salvation, and we have these dark, sirens and sorceresses and pagan goddesses and damnation all circling around this central lady of the lake figure all these competing ideas are living under one roof and the lady of the lake is an emblem of the lake itself the symbol of the lake that we've been examining One idea that's been drifting in and out of our conversation thus far has been the problem of evil and sin and its association with the lake and damnation. And as we can see, there's a part of the Lady of the Lake that contains that dark element. And same with the lake itself, that we can also see as the lake of fire. But there was one more thing I wanted to mention in connection with the passage we read from the Grail legend by Emma Jung regarding Merlin. And I think this might shed some light on why he was entombed by the Lady of the Lake and what he himself represented. And that first line was talking about how, as the son of demonic powers and of a chaste, virgin religious mother, he himself represented a union of opposites, a union of good and evil. He was the devil's son who devoted himself to God. So he was connected to nature and was a union of 
Christian and pagan principles. And near the end of the book, Emma Jung makes the fascinating assertion that Merlin psychologically represents the content of the grail itself. He is the solution that the grail holds as a unification of good and evil, of Christian and pagan, of dark and light. That's a significant idea we'll talk about more further on in the episode. But the reason that he is entrapped and entombed by the Lady of the Lake, has his power stolen, is that medieval man was not ready to grapple with what he represents. The Christian mentality of the time had to deal with the feminine first before it could even begin to tackle what Merlin and his synthesis of good and evil really meant. And so, that is why she took his power and he was swallowed up in the earth, which represents sinking into the unconscious. Merlin was an idea that was bubbling up that ultimately did not make it to the surface of consciousness. He was blocked by a bigger issue at the time, which was the integration of the feminine and a relationship with materiality and the body. So the deeper problem of evil was contained within the Lady of the Lake and her powers, and that was what took the forefront in the dramatic compensation to Christianity that was arising from the medieval unconscious. And I think that there's an excellent example of this association between the Lady of the Lake and the lake itself and damnation and hell in one of the supposed locations of the Lady's Lake itself one of the physical geographic lakes that has been put forth as a possible location of the actual Ladies Lake is a place called Dosmary Pool. It's located in Cornwall, and the legends that surround it associate it not only with the Lady of the Lake, but also with a sinister story of hell and damnation. I'm going to read from the Wikipedia entry to give a summary of those legends. Quote, Dosmary Pool is one site that is claimed to be the home of the Lady of the Lake. According to the legend, it is here that King Arthur rode out to the Lady of the Lake and received the sword Excalibur. The pool is also claimed to be the place where Bedivere returned Excalibur as Arthur lay dying after the Battle of Camlan. Another tale associated with Dawsmary Pool is that of Jan Tregigal. In search of deviant exploits, Tregigal makes a Faustian bargain with the devil and is given money and power. At the conclusion of his life, he is damned to the bottomless Dawsmary Pool, where he is tormented to this day. It is said that Tregigal's ghost can still be heard howling across the moor. End quote. So it seems here that the Lady's Lake is a place from which power is given and a place to which power is returned. It's fascinating but shouldn't be surprising at this point over the past two episodes that the Lady of the Lake shares a home with a legend of a man who has a deal with the devil and then 
It's trapped at the bottom of the lake and damnation. The lake itself is the underworld, a place where the poor soul of Tregical gets trapped and tormented for eternity. And that is the same image that we are going to be examining by reading near-death experiences that feature a lake of fire. We've already discussed one such near-death experience which featured a lake of fire at the beginning of this episode, but I wanted to share two more that I found that can give us a little more context and more to dive into. One is coming from a news article that I found, ironically, here in Tennessee. It's entitled, One Went to Heaven, the Other Went to Hell. Two East Tennesseans share their near-death experiences. And in it, a man named Ronald Reagan, believe it or not, had a near-death experience in which he visited hell and saw a lake of fire. So I'm going to read a quick excerpt from this article. Quote, I feel like that I need to tell people, you know, is your heart right? That's a feeling to which Ronald Reagan can relate. As a young man growing up in East Tennessee, he'd lived a rough life, one that included repeated crime and violence fueled by drugs and alcohol. At age 25, a fight almost ended it outside a packaged liquor store. I hit him and knocked him down, he recalled, describing an adversary. He broke a bottle and started stabbing me. In just minutes, I was bleeding to death. For Reagan, the nightmare was just beginning. In the ambulance, he could feel his body floating above the gurney, and yet he knew intellectually that his body was still on the gurney. It was like I was passing through the open mouth of an active volcano or a burning lake, he recalled. He saw the faces of people he knew, people who were dead. They told him, Ronnie, don't come here. There's no escape. My body jerked like I'd been electrocuted, he recalled. What he'd seen sure looked like hell. End quote. Okay, so I'm going to follow that up with another NDE I found that features a lake of fire. Ironically, it's by another man named Ron. Uh, Not the same Ron, different guy, but this near-death experience is coming from the nderf.org website. Quote, I was crushed under an elevator at work. I felt my life leave my body and then I was in darkness. It was so dark I could feel it. I was floating and the temperature was pleasant. I heard and saw my wife crying for me and telling me to fight. She said, fight, you're a fighter. A man in a white robe that I saw by her, who I thought was a doctor, said, he can't hear a word you say. I was angry when I heard him say that. I found out later that he was a male nurse. When I got angry, I was taken away from seeing my wife to that dark place again. I could hear my thoughts. My mouth didn't need to talk. I began to see what looked like smoke and a reddish-orange color. I was taken closer until I could see it was a fire in the form of a lake. I was terrified 
Then I came back in my body, and I was on life support, and the doctor said, let's see if he can breathe on his own. End quote. All right, so we have a very similar image appearing in both of these near-death experiences from the two Rons, and quite resonant with the first Lake of Fire near-death experience that I read at the beginning of this episode. So all three of these near-death experiences seem to be quite consistent in their description of the Lake of Fire and its features. People within the lake that were being burned and tormented, screaming to the experiencer not to go in, that there was no escape. And it sounds like in each of these cases, the experience of the Lake of Fire had a similar effect upon the individual who had the experience. I only read the relevant material that included a lake of fire, but all three had a strong conversion to Christianity and adopted a very strict religious outlook on life. The man featured in the news article, Ronald Reagan, even became a pastor. But despite the consistent imagery and effect and nature of these three lake of fire near-death experiences, I'm not going to propose that that means it's a metaphysical reality or that it's going to be some false binary of if you don't go to heaven, you go to the lake of fire sort of thing. But what it does point to is the split in the nature of this image of this symbol of the lake and the two extremes that it can take, that of a blissful paradise and that of a burning hellish cauldron. And it seems so far through everything that we've discussed that our personal behavior and actions bear some relation to the difference in that image and that symbol. And that's what we've been talking about through the lens of salvation and damnation and our own personal relation to what the symbol of the lake represents. And again, as we've mentioned before, we don't have a whole lot of information on these individuals and their actions and behaviors that led them to experience this awful lake of fire in DE. We don't know their past. We don't know exactly what they did or, or what they thought about life. In the case of the news article on Ronald Reagan, it sounded like he had a very rough life and had run-ins with the law and drugs and alcohol and was in a physical fight when he had his near-death experience. But that doesn't really do us much good. Lots of us have rough patches of our lives, and I'm sure some of us have had very rough upbringings and perhaps continue to have a difficult life. And it's not very comforting to know that perhaps a awful vision of the lake of fire might be awaiting us. And especially on such baseless speculation, not really knowing what caused this individual to have that particular NDE. And so as I've talked about before, what I think is more useful 
is for us to look at the image itself and to find its historical roots and what people of the time thought about it. What is the general consensus of history and culture and religion about this place, the Lake of Fire? Why do you go there? How do you get there? What do people think of the Lake of Fire? These are psychological statements. They're statements of fact as they come from an objective, autonomous psyche. But they are amalgamized over time and history into certain religious ideas and intuitions that people have had about hell and in particular this form, the lake of fire. So in order to explore the answers to those questions that humanity has come up with, we need to look at the origin of this particular image of the lake of fire. And I was surprised to learn that it goes much farther back than just the Christian Bible and particularly the mention of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. But the source of that idea seems to be coming ultimately from ancient Egypt. In order to get a full picture of this symbol of the lake of fire, I'm going to read a good chunk from its Wikipedia entry and then supplement with further readings. Quote, The lake of fire appears in both ancient Egyptian and Christian religion as a place of after-death punishment of the wicked. The phrase is used in five verses from the book of Revelation. In the biblical context, the concept seems analogous to the Jewish Gehenna, or the more common concept of hell. The image of the lake of fire was taken up by the early Christian Hippolytus of Rome in about the year 2030 and has continued to be used by modern Christians. Ancient Egyptian Religion Richard H. Wilkinson has written, quote, According to the Coffin texts and other works, the underworld contained fiery rivers and lakes as well as fire demons identified by fire signs on their heads, which threatened the wicked. Representations of the fiery lakes of the fifth hour or house of the Amduat depict them in the form of the standard pool or lake hieroglyph, but with flame-red water lines and surrounded on all four sides by fire signs, which not only identified the blazing nature of the lakes, but also feed them through their graphic, quote, dripping of their flames. Some temple texts and modern books have said that the lake of fire in Egyptian religion is the lake that Ra would pass through in his daily journey in the Duat. He goes in the west gate and exits through the east gate, and after that, it would say that the boat was renewed, end quote. An image in the papyrus of Ani circa 1250 BC, a version of the Book of the Dead has been described as follows, quote, The scene shows four baboons sitting at the corners of a rectangular pool. On each side of this pool is a flaming brazier. The pool's red color indicates that it is filled with a fiery liquid, reminding one of the lake of fire 
frequently mentioned in the Book of the Dead. End quote. Okay, so I just wanted to pause briefly to emphasize a few things. We got a good overview of what the Lake of Fire is and its historical roots, that it comes from ancient Egyptian religion. And I just wanted to point that out, that we're dealing with an image that, I mean, that one quote that we talked about was coming from 1250 BC, that hieroglyph that was being described. That's a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And who knows how far back in Egyptian religion that this image goes before 1250 BC. With the first episode, we talked about many, many examples of lakes being used in a sacred context and representing the afterlife or the underworld or some mix of both. And what's fascinating about the Lake of Fire is not only do we have that afterlife underworld symbol going on in this case, but it's given a very hellish, negative, fiery connotation. And that's been very powerful for, for all of us. It's continued on to the modern day. Modern people have seen this image in near-death experiences. And the least we can say about the imagery provided by near-death experiences is that they are autonomously given based on the individual's beliefs or culture or religion. And all of those things have a historical basis. There are reasons that people believe certain things that are passed down to us. And it's fascinating that in a near-death experience or in some fire and brimstone Baptist sermon that this image of the lake of fire appears and ultimately we can look back and see it in ancient Egypt thousands of years before our modern time. I'm inclined to think that if an image or symbol has stuck with us for thousands of years, that there's a reason for that. And that reason is not based on a metaphysical reality, but on a psychological one. That these images and symbols convey psychological states that occur autonomously within us. And ultimately that is what one confronts at the moment of death. Oneself. I'm now going to continue reading from the Wikipedia entry to see how this image became embedded in Christian religion and how it's come down to us. Quote, Mark chapter 9 verse 43 has Jesus himself used the image of a punishing unquenchable fire. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. The book of Revelation has five verses that mention a lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, quote, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, 
and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. End quote. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, quote, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. End quote. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Quote, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. End quote. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Quote, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. End quote. A commonly accepted and traditional interpretation is that the lake of fire and the second death are symbolic of eternal pain pain of loss, and perhaps pain of the senses, as punishment for wickedness. However, the Greek words translated torment or tormented in English come from the root Greek, basanos, with the original meaning of, quote, the testing of gold and silver as a medium of exchange by the proving stone, and later a connotation of a person, especially a slave, quote, severely tested by torture to reveal the truth, end quote. So there we have the origins of the lake of fire imagery in the Christian religion, particularly coming from the book of Revelation, the visions of John of Patmos, which we are going to talk a bit more about later on by reading a, uh, an excerpt from Jung's work entitled Answer to Job, in which he talks about the book of Revelation quite extensively. Toward the end of this last passage that we just read, we also had a brief glimpse at a different possible interpretation of the lake of fire imagery, having to do with the refining of gold and the purification of that chemical process, the testing of certain metals. And that is something that we are going to explore more as we read further and once we begin talking about certain universalist interpretations of the lake of fire symbol. But for now, we are going to continue reading the article and see how this imagery was developed not only in the early Christian era, but also in the 20th century as well. Quote, Hippolytus of Rome, who died 235 AD, pictured Hades, the abode of the dead, as containing a lake of unquenchable fire, at the edge of which the unrighteous, quote, shudder in horror at the expectation of the future judgment, as if they were already feeling the power of their punishment, end quote. The lake of fire is described by Hippolytus unambiguously as the place of eternal torment for the sinners after the resurrection. 20th century. The Catholic Portuguese visionary Lucia Santos 
reported that the Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Fatima, had given her a vision of hell as a sea of fire. Quote, Our Lady showed us a great sea of fire, which seemed to be under the earth. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks in a huge fire, without weight or equilibrium, and amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. End quote. Hippolytus was one of the early theologians of this nascent Christian religion and certainly helped shape people's views upon it at the time that has been passed down to us. In this reading, we also have another connection between Virgin Mary and the symbol of the lake, although in this case it is the seething, tormenting lake of fire in the vision of Lucia Santos. But this contrasts quite strikingly against the vision with which we began the first episode, which was a vision granted by the Virgin Mary as well to a woman named Cleo after her NDE, in which she saw a dark lake, and this vision had a connotation of new life as she saw the soul of her child swimming through the lake and enter her body. That's the complete opposite of a burning cauldron of punishment and torment and flames. So it just shows the complexity of the symbol and its extreme forms that it can take, though both are visions purportedly received from the Virgin Mary. And as we've been discussing throughout this entire episode, it's this contrast and this complexity that we are trying to reconcile. It's the difference between salvation and damnation and how this one image can contain both. Although this lake of fire imagery is closely associated with damnation and hell and torment and punishment for the wicked, for those who have sinned, there was another interpretation which arose around the same time as Hippolytus, which offered it a slightly more optimistic light, which we're going to read about now. Quote, Early Christian Universalists, most notably Origen of Alexandria, 184 to 253 AD, and Gregory of Nyssa, 335 to 395 AD, understood the lake of fire as a symbolic purifying fire used to eliminate the dross from the gold or a, quote, refiner's crucible. Origen refers to the, quote, lead of wickedness that must be refined out of the gold. Origen obtained his universalist views, known then as a pocket stasis, from his mentor, Clement of Alexandria, 150 to 215 AD. Origen explained the refining metaphor in response to a philosopher named Celsus, who accused Christians of representing God 
as a merciless tormentor armed with fire. In the view of Origen, quote, Our God is a consuming fire in the sense in which we have taken the word, and thus he enters in as a refiner's fire to refine the rational nature, which has been filled with the lead of wickedness, and to free it from other impure materials which adulterate the natural gold or silver, so to speak, of the soul. End quote. The 19th century scholar Charles Big summarized Origen's view as quote, Slowly yet certainly the blessed change must come. The purifying fire must eat up the dross and leave the pure gold. One by one we shall enter into rest, never to stray again. Then when death, the last enemy, is destroyed, when the tale of his children is complete, Christ will drink wine in the kingdom of his Father. This is the end, when all shall be one, as Christ and the Father are one, when God shall be all in all. End quote. In the view of Gregory of Nyssa, quote, when death approaches to life, and darkness to light, and the corruptible to the incorruptible, the inferior is done away with and reduced to non-existence, and the thing purged is benefited, just as the dross is purged from gold by fire. End quote. Further evidence corroborating their interpretation of the lake of fire as a refiner's crucible is that the Greek word commonly translated as lake also refers to something small, like a pond or pool, as translated in the Wycliffe and New American Bible. Also, the added detail of sulfur in the lake of fire is related to an ancient gold refining technique. Gold refining by sulfurization, also related to gold parting, is described in detail by ancient writers. When unwanted metals, such as lead and copper, are heated in the presence of sulfur, the chemical reaction reduces the unwanted metals into sulfides, such as lead 2-sulfide and copper 1-sulfide. Since sulfur is a much lighter element, atomic number 16 on the periodic table, the new sulfide molecules easily float to the top of the crucible as dross. Sulfur is also part of the smelting process related to silver and gold and other metal ores and naturally occurs in these ores. End quote. All right, so not to get too much into chemistry there, but I was always curious as to why the expression was fire and brimstone. And it turns out that brimstone was an older word for sulfur. And sure enough, all of these refinement metaphors, the testing of gold, that sort of thing that seems to be present in the etymology of some of these words from the Greek roots and also some of the interpretations given by early Christian thinkers is very interesting and provides a slightly more humanistic and perhaps positive look at this image of the lake of fire. It's fascinating that yet again, even in a symbol, an image which is ostensibly focused around pain and suffering and torment, we have a split 
where some people interpret it as hellfire, torture, damnation, and others see it as a, a means of improving oneself, of getting rid of that which is sinful and wicked, and seeing it in an overall positive light. I would be tempted to say that the messages we tend to get out of near-death experiences tend to resonate with that latter interpretation, the universalist interpretation, that is, that no one is ultimately completely damned, that there's always a way out, that everyone will be saved eventually, that sort of thing seems to be the common theme that emerges out of most near-death experiences. But we also have to include the negative NDEs in that picture as well, such as the ones that we have read here. And those don't get talked about quite as often, and I'm sure there are lots of reasons for that. Those who have negative, hellish, near-death experiences are probably reticent to talk about them or tell people about them. I was reading one study that was looking specifically at hellish near-death experiences and trying to draw some broad conclusions about them. And they said as many as one in five near-death experiences could be negative and that there was no direct link between the individual's moral circumstances, how they died, where they were at in their life, that that could definitively say whether someone was going to have a near-death experience that was hellish or one that was overall positive. People often talk about suicide being a common cause of hellish-type near-death experiences, and that's certainly something I've come across in reading them, but there are also suicide-related near-death experiences which lead to heavenly, beautiful, redeeming-type near-death experiences as well. So it's really not something you can say what exactly causes the experience that you get. So this is all well and good to look at the history of the Lake of Fire and some of the interpretations of it, some of the similarities to near-death experiences and other experiences as well. But what does that do for us? What does that mean for us? What can we learn about ourselves through this image of the Lake of Fire? Well, to answer those questions, I want to read a excerpt from one of my favorite books, which is called On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz. And she talks about the psychological meaning of the lake of fire, what it could mean if we were to see it within us. Quote, In the Christian tradition, the realm of the dead, as we know, is described as fiery, that is, as hellfire and purgatory fire. The idea of purgatory fire was not generally established as part of the Catholic teaching about the beyond until the 12th century. 
But we do find in the early church fathers some indefinite ideas concerning the sojourn of souls in an intermediary realm before the final judgment. Orphic Pythagorean, Platonic, and especially Egyptian images have exerted not a small influence upon these concepts, whereas the Old Testament Sheol, a dark, loamy place, does not play a large role. A fiery beyond is mentioned in the book of Henoch, 2nd 1st century BC, which points to Egyptian influences. And in the Apocalypse of Esdras, the beyond, in contradistinction to paradise, is called the fire of Gehenna. In the Christian Articles of Faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-16, through 16, was considered to be the basis of a belief in purgatory fire. The Apostle Paul refers there to Jesus Christ as the foundation upon which each man builds his work. Quote, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? End quote. Here the fire tests the work of man, that which is eternal in it, and that which is ephemeral. The fire which either punishes hell, or purges or tests purgatory, was for a long time not more precisely differentiated. This was also the case with the in-between state, which was at first not always described as a place of fire, but rather as a refrigerium a place of refreshment, where water flows. Clement of Alexandria died before 215, and Origen died 253 or 254, were early advocates of the purgatory idea. Hell, for Origen, is only a temporal place of limited punishment. He rejects the idea of eternal damnation, but purgatory serves as a catharsis, a psychic purification, and their souls are informed of the existence of something better. Only for those who cannot be taught is purgatory a punishment. St. Augustine expresses for the first time the belief that the dead can be assisted in the in-between state through the intercessory prayers of the living. Clement of Alexandria introduced a further idea worth mentioning that the fire burns forth from God or Christ, and that the passage through purgatory is a kind of fire baptism. Whereas for some, this fire is a punishment, for others it is a means of sanctification. In the latter case, it does not burn, but as a spiritual fire flows through the soul. It is not concrete fire as we know it, but rather a subtle spiritual fire. This idea of Clement comes very close to a modern psychological understanding of the fire symbolism of the beyond. The Christian ideas harken back quite clearly to the old Egyptian symbolism, and they appear there in their original, primitive vividness. In the Egyptian world of the dead, there is a fire lake, or a fire hole, also called a fire island. 
the water of which is at the same time fire. Osiris, quote, breathes through the unapproachable water of this fire hole, end quote. The sun god, Ra, speaks to the dead about this lake, quote, Its water belongs to you, but its fire is not directed against you. Its heat is not directed against your dead body, end quote. Evil ones, on the other hand, are tortured and burned by this fire, and in this respect the fire water tests everything which is in it. From a psychological point of view, the fire is not to be understood concretely, of course. It was used by the old alchemists as a symbol, for they equated it with its opposite, the water, thereby obviously understanding it as a mystical fire. In itself, fire is a symbol for psychic energy. It symbolizes that unknown psychic something which manifests itself in drives, wishes, volitions, affects, attention, capacity for work, etc., and their expressed degrees of intensity. Seen historically, our understanding of physical and psychic energy has emerged from the concepts of mana, Malungu, Orenda, Wakanda, Manitu, etc., which primitive man understood to characterize everything that was uncanny, powerful, creative, extraordinarily effective, sacred, such as the lightning, a special tree or animal, the personality which radiated from a chieftain, etc., We recognize in this primitive concept what today we call psychic and physical energy, which for the primitive were not yet separated. Only after a long process of historical development did the modern understanding of physical energy develop out of the original concept of energy. Heraclitus's mind-given fire corresponds to a still relatively original idea of energy. Quote, This ordered universe, cosmos, which is the same for all, was not created by any one of the gods or by mankind, but it was ever, and is, and shall be, ever-living fire, kindled in measure and quenched in measure. In the Stoic philosophy, this concept developed into the idea of a fiery spirit, pneuma, which fills the universe and is the divinity itself. In antique and medieval alchemy, this ancient idea continued to exist in the image of Mercury, who was seen as a mysterious elementary fire, a life spirit present in all things, or as a creator nature spirit. This fire spirit became the foundation of the so-called phlogiston theory in early chemistry, which then developed, as S. Sambersky has shown, into the modern idea of the power field. End quote. So I thought this passage from On Dreams and Death captured a lot of what we are trying to explore by talking about the different aspects of this lake of fire image. We retraced our steps to some degree, talking about some of the origins of this symbol from Egyptian religious ideas, talking about the god Ra speaking to the dead, saying, this water is you. 
and it will not burn your body, but also containing ideas that the evil and wicked are punished and tortured by this fiery water, and also getting into some of the early Christian conceptions of purgatory and the basis for that belief in a particular verse from Corinthians and then how it was developed and added to by early Christian theologians from Origen to St. Augustine. And I think that paragraph provided some very powerful ideas that the fire that burns through purgatory for some is punishment, but for others is sanctification. That it is a fire of Christ and a fire baptism in a way. That's, that is one road that some early Christian thinkers took. And then from there, we got to actually talk about what fire may symbolize psychologically. Fire is energy. And that is how von Franz describes the symbolism of fire as it appears in psychological experiences and emphasizes that we need not take it so concretely as actual physical fire. Nevertheless, in certain experiences, I'm sure it has some aspect to it that is immediate or concrete to the experiencer, such as in some of the hellish Lake of Fire NDEs that we read. It certainly seemed like those individuals were experiencing something that they could feel the effect of. But again, we are dealing with symbolic images and there may be some overlap between their actual feeling and sensation and their symbolic meaning. And I think that meaning can be very helpful to understand. One thing that has struck me through reading about the history of this image of the lake of fire is how impersonal some of our deepest held beliefs and religious experiences could be. A near-death experience could be conditioned by the images passed down to us from history. That the lake of fire in Christianity has a strong link back to Egyptian sources. And you have a modern individual that has a hellish experience of the lake of fire, that that can almost be traced back thousands of years in a way. Now certainly there are other images which are personal to certain individuals. And there's even experiences where we can draw a difference between impersonal images which are consciously believed and those which arise spontaneously from unconscious symbolism, such as the lake appearing in the vision of Cleo given to her by the Virgin Mary. That wasn't necessarily something that she would have gotten from the Bible or, or some religious belief per se, but nevertheless, the imagery was autonomously put together to express a certain idea, and that has resonance with 
religious and spiritual beliefs about lakes from around the world, as we've discussed. And so it's interesting that you can have a conscious belief that sinners go to the lake of fire, and certainly you could see that. But on the other hand, this imagery can operate on its own, regardless of what you believe. I was reading a paper that was looking at the cultural and religious sources of the imagery in people's near-death experiences. It was fascinating. I might try to read it on the podcast sometime. But it did a really good job at looking at cultural differences in people's near-death experiences. Uh, Western NDEs versus non-Western NDEs. Certain motifs and patterns and tendencies that some cultures had in their near-death experiences that were not to be found in others. And the summary of the article, the point that they were driving at, is that there is no metaphysical unity of the near-death experience. That there's no way of saying it's a singular place that everyone goes to, that everyone sees and all the differences are just due to misinterpretation or claiming a figure of light is one religious figure versus another. That that doesn't account for what people actually see. That there is personal aspect to it, but also impersonal aspects that are given to us by our culture and history and the place where we grow up and live and Uh, take part of the symbolism of a particular place. And I bring this up because I found it quite interesting that I could not find many or any examples of the Lake of Fire appearing in non-Western religious ideas or stories or near-death experiences or anything. I'm sure it's there somewhere, and if anyone happens upon an example, i love to hear it and and read about it. I mean, I thought even some Polynesian cultures, uh, volcanic islands in the Pacific might have some lake of fire type imagery given volcanoes and that sort of thing, but I was not able to find anything. It seems to be a strictly Western symbol, the lake of fire despite its overlap with many of the other cultural conceptions we saw of a lake being the resting place of the dead, or where the dead reside, or where a deity resides. There is some resonance there, but this particular image of the infernal, fiery lake of fire is one that seems particular to the West. And sure enough, it is still active today in people's experiences, NDEs and otherwise. So I think all this brings us to a very critical point in our discussion of the imagery of the lake and near-death experiences, that of a lake of paradise and a lake of fire and the movement toward either of those two conceptions of the lake. So we've been talking about salvation or damnation. And as far as I can summarize it or 
attempt to grasp it, express what I could sum up from all this, is that the lake's connection with salvation and damnation is fourfold in a way. That the lake can be salvation, as we saw with Christ walking on the water and his miracles, or Pushkar Lake, and the pilgrims being washed away of their sins. Or the lake can just be damnation, that of Jan Tregigal, or some of the hellish near-death experiences we read, eternal torment. But then there was also this fascinating twist that came up, that too much salvation can lead to damnation, as we saw in the story of Lancelot, in his spiritually naive quest for perfection, which he excludes the feminine element, the body, matter, all represented by the Lady of the Lake. And she encourages the affair which leads to his demise and that of Arthur's kingdom as well. And then finally, we also have the opposite twist, where damnation leads to salvation. We see that in all of the ideas surrounding the lake of fire as a means of purification, as a way of removing impurities from the gold, of preparing the soul to merge with that which is higher, which is more refined, I suppose. And that this process can be painful and punishment for some who perhaps are unwilling to learn the lessons, but that it is a means to an end and ultimately for all is a process of redemption. So we seem to have reached a difficult crossroads here in our discussion. We've come to a point where one thing can turn into its opposite and vice versa. And that's inherently confusing and hard to manage. It's the problem of the opposites that we've been talking about in these past two episodes. The good and evil, male and female, black and white, combined under one roof that we've been looking at through the lens of the symbol of the lake as it appears in near-death experiences and in mythology and religion around the world. That's a difficult place to be and one that I feel like we can further elaborate on just a bit more. I want to pick up where we left off with the Lake of Fire for a minute, talking about its appearance in the book of Revelation. That is where this Lake of Fire image became popularized to some degree, especially in the Christian worldview. There is an incredible little book by Carl Jung entitled Answer to Job. And it's fascinating because all of his years of experience and insights as a psychologist studying the unconscious comes to bear in a uh, being applied to theology, the Christian God image and how it developed and changed throughout the course of the Bible and where it might be going. And in that book, he touches on the book of Revelation 
that powerful end to the Bible that so many people fear and remember. He examines it as a psychologist with the view that this apocalyptic vision is an objective phenomenon from the psyche. And he talks about John of Patmos, the writer of the book of Revelation. And that is where we are going to pick up these few passages that I'm going to read. He's looking at why John must have had this vision and perhaps what it means in terms of the totality of the image of God. Quote, Let us be psychologically correct, however. It is not the conscious mind of John that thinks up these fantasies. They come to him in a violent revelation. They fall upon him involuntarily with an unexpected vehemence and with an intensity which, as said, far transcends anything we could expect as compensation of a somewhat one-sided attitude of consciousness. I have seen many compensating dreams of believing Christians who deceived themselves about their real psychic constitution and imagined that they were in a different condition from what they were in reality. But I have seen nothing that even remotely resembles the brutal impact with which the opposites collide in John's visions, except in the case of severe psychosis. However, John gives us no grounds for such a diagnosis. His apocalyptic visions are not confused enough. They are too consistent, not subjective and scurrilous enough. Considering the nature of their subject, the accompanying affects are adequate. Their author need not necessarily be an unbalanced psychopath. It is sufficient that he is a passionately religious person with an otherwise well-ordered psyche. But he must have an intensive relationship to God, which lays him open to an invasion far transcending anything personal. The really religious person, in whom the capacity for an unusual extension of consciousness is inborn, must be prepared for such dangers. The purpose of the apocalyptic visions is not to tell John, as an ordinary human being, how much shadow he hides beneath his luminous nature, but to open the seer's eye to the immensity of God, for he who loves God will know God. We can say that just because John loved God and did his best to love his fellows also, this quote, gnosis, this knowledge of God struck him. Like Job, he saw the fierce and terrible side of Yahweh. For this reason, he felt his gospel of love to be one-sided, and he supplemented it with the gospel of fear. God can be loved, but must be feared. With this, the seer's range of vision extends far beyond the first half of the Christian eon. He divines that the reign of the Antichrist will begin after a thousand years, a clear indication that Christ was not an unqualified victor. John anticipated the alchemists and Jacob Bohm. Maybe he even sensed his own personal implication in the divine drama, since he anticipated the possibility of God's birth in man, 
which the alchemists Meister Eckert and Angelus Celestius also intuited. He thus outlined the program for the whole eon of Pisces, with its dramatic enantiodromia and its dark end which we have still to experience, and before whose, without exaggeration, truly apocalyptic possibilities mankind shudders. The four sinister horsemen, the threatening tumult of trumpets, and the brimming vials of wrath are still waiting. Already the atom bomb hangs over us like the sword of Damocles, and behind that lurk the incomparably more terrible possibilities of chemical warfare, which would eclipse even the horrors described in the apocalypse. Luciferi viris akindit Aquarius acres. Aquarius sets aflame Lucifer's harsh forces. Could anyone in his right senses deny that John correctly foresaw at least some of the possible dangers which threaten our world in the final phase of the Christian eon? He knew also that the fire in which the devil is tormented burns in the divine pleroma forever. God has a terrible double aspect. A sea of grace is met by a seething lake of fire and the light of love glows with a fierce dark heat, of which it is said, ardit non lucit, it burns but gives no light. That is the eternal, as distinct from the temporal gospel. One can love God, but must fear him. End quote. So there we have a beautiful and poetic summation of the problem of the opposites as it appears in the book of Revelation, that the sea of grace which God gives us is also a seething lake of fire, that one can love God but must fear him. That is what we've been discussing through the lens of the image of the lake, as it has appeared in near-death experiences and in mythology and religion around the world. We've seen both of those aspects. As we've talked about at length, the lake is a symbol of the self, the totality of the psyche. It is a God image itself. We've seen this in all of the examples that we've discussed so far. The ideas and associations and amplifications that people have projected onto the lake around the world in different cultures. We've seen the dark and the light. We've seen gods and demons. We've seen power and mystery. It is the afterlife and the underworld. It is heaven and hell, as even modern people have experienced in NDEs. And we've talked about how our own actions and moral behavior may tilt us one way or another to either of those two destinations, a sea of grace or a lake of fire. The ideas of salvation and damnation in the examples of lake symbolism in which we explored them ended up being quite complex and fourfold as I could picture them. We have salvation, damnation, 
salvation which leads to damnation, and vice versa, damnation which leads to salvation. All four of these movements or ways of acting in the world can be experienced from within or without. We can experience them out in the world in extroverted form or from within, from our own unconscious in an introverted form. That is something we talked about in terms of the difference between the Sea of Galilee and Pushkar Lake, the difference we saw between Christ taking salvation out of the lake and Hindu pilgrims seeking salvation within the lake. And I have every reason to believe that the same distinction of introversion and extroversion can be applied to sin and damnation. Damning acts can be taken out on people out in the world or on oneself from within. Now, in terms of talking about salvation and damnation and which actions lead us either way, lead us to either lake, I am not going to moralize and tell you always do this or never do that. I don't think I'm in any position to tell you what's right to do or wrong to do at any one moment, but we may be able to sketch some general type of ideas surrounding salvation and damnation as we've seen embodied in the symbolism and imagery of the lake and the stories which surround it. Here's one example to start. We speculated what a perfect relation to God may look like, the ultimate goal of salvation perhaps, as embodied by Christ, and the state in which miracles become possible, that one can create abundance out of nothing. In this state, it seems that by the grace of God, one can take watery ideas and words and intuitions and make them into something concrete, make them a reality. That's walking on the water. That's making the psyche real. And it is not to serve one's own purposes as people try to do with manifestation and all that nonsense, but to serve God and having that perfect relation with God that affects not only oneself, but the people around you. That would be the idea at least. And that seems to be characterized by sacrifice, giving something up. Sacrifice was also how Brahma sanctified Pushkar Lake and made it a place in which people can be washed clean of their sins. So perhaps we can say from a thousand-foot view that sacrifice may lead one towards salvation, towards that state of closeness with God, or a state of bliss or paradise. And what that looks like in everyday encounters just depends. 
an act of kindness or giving to a stranger or a loved one, giving up one of your pleasurable desires in the moment for a payoff at a future date. It's a fairly abstract concept and one that one could spend hours talking about, and so I think it'll suffice just to say that sacrifice has something to do with that movement towards a lake of paradise, movement towards salvation. However, one can always sacrifice too much. If you give away everything and have nothing for yourself, you won't be of much use to anybody. How can you raise a family if you give away every last cent that you have to someone else? We saw this in the story of Lancelot who sacrificed his own relation to materiality in the body and his instincts in service of some lofty spiritual knightly quest which led to the inevitable consequence that the feminine and the body had revenge upon him, that he was led into an adulterous affair with Queen Guinevere. In trying to be one-sided and perfect, he sacrificed his completeness as a human being, and that led to sin and destruction. So in some ways, a hundred percent absolute sacrifice, when not called for at the right moment, leads to damnation, perhaps. It loses our connection to our place in the world, our lives that we're meant to lead, our ability to act and be conscious, to honor this incarnation that we have. Perhaps it's something like taking glory from God for ourselves. And if we can vaguely and generally say that sacrifice has something to do with salvation, Perhaps the opposite has something to do with damnation, the act of taking or stealing or robbing. We had talked about the lake being the place out of which power was taken and power was returned. We saw that in King Arthur's sword Excalibur and also in the story of Jan Tregigal. It's the classic meet-the-devil-at-the-crossroads story where Jan makes a deal with the devil and for this takes money and power and wealth all for himself. And yet, the moral of the story, as has been told thousands of times in countless folktales and movies, stories, books, what is taken always has to be returned perhaps with interest. And for this, Jan's life is taken. He is sentenced to torment and suffering at the bottom of the lake, Dawesmary Pool. And it is fascinating to look at the fiery and consumptive nature of most of these depictions that we've seen of the Lake of Fire, as we saw in several near-death experiences which we read. The fires burn and torment and take away. Perhaps we could say that damnation is like the opposite of a miracle. 
a miracle creates abundance out of nothing, whereas damnation creates nothing out of something. A damning act takes abundance and fullness in life and consumes it at the expense of someone else. And that ultimately must be repaid, perhaps even in the form of the fires of the lake taking it back. That being said, though, I don't think it's all fire and brimstone and doom and gloom. We all have to take throughout our lives, and we're all guilty of that to some degree. Our very life itself was taken from our parents, so to speak. And perhaps our whole lives are an act of paying off that debt. World mythology of our creation seems to reflect that. Prometheus stole fire from the gods for humanity. Eve took the apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even Nanabozo, who we talked about in the first episode, stole fire for the Ojibwe people. It is inherent to who we are to have that aspect to us. And each time that we take or sin or do something damning, and repay that debt, we might grow a little bit from that lesson. We might pay in suffering, or a guilty conscience, or in pain or trauma. We may pay in all sorts of ways, but if we can navigate that and learn from it, that is the process of growth. And that process towards becoming more of who we are. That is also assuming that we don't take too much, commit an act or a crime so heinous that there's no coming back from it. But one of my favorite quotes from Jung is that there is no coming to consciousness without pain. And in that we start to see how there can be salvation in the damnation. In that, we can see where some of the early universalist Christian theologians got this idea of purgatory and the lake of fire cleansing one's soul and purifying it and making it more refined, of taking the impurities out of the gold and allowing one to become radiant and like unto that which is greater or like unto God. As we come now towards a conclusion, I thought it might be helpful in light of the ideas of salvation and damnation that we've developed to reflect back upon the two quotes with which we began this episode, the quote from the philosopher Nietzsche and the poet Rumi. Both are in reference to a lake, and yet have strikingly different outlooks or attitudes towards it. The quote of Nietzsche was, There is a lake which one day refused to flow away and threw up a dam at the place where it had hitherto discharged. Since then, this lake has always risen higher and higher. Perhaps the very renunciation will also furnish us with the strength with which the renunciation itself can be born, 
Perhaps man will ever rise higher and higher from that point onward, when he no longer flows out into a god. And then the quote from Rumi was, Who could be so lucky? Who comes to a lake for water and sees the reflection of moon? In Nietzsche's quote, he himself is the lake who is being built up after having a dam stopping the flow of water running off into a god. He is rising ever higher. He is taking that which belongs to God and fashioning more of himself out of it. That is not unlike stealing fire from the gods, but ultimately comes with the price that is paid by God, that of one's life, or pain or suffering of an incredible magnitude. Certainly it sounds as though Nietzsche may have paid that price in his own life, his final years descending into madness before dying quite young. Rumi, on the other hand, instead of taking, appears to be giving. He gives his reverence and awe to this divine sight because Rumi recognizes the true source of this experience. It is not his, but is coming from somewhere else. We get that from that little line of who could be so lucky. It's a feeling of grace, of being grateful, thankful for what is given. And moreover, once that grace is acknowledged and that gratitude is truly felt, then not only does one come to the lake for water, but receives moonlight as well. There is more that is given once that grace is recognized, once the source of all of this is recognized as God, that which is beyond us, something bigger than us at the very least. And that state of gratitude and thankfulness is what allows that experience to happen. It is a sacrifice of our ego, or at least framing it properly as something smaller in relation to something bigger, such as the lake, perhaps. Because as we've seen, the lake and what it represents contains the dark and the light, the totality of gods and demons and heaven and hell. And that's something not only to be feared, but also to be loved. It's something that we have within us ourselves. And like the lake, we have to be able to contain all of those opposites, all of those multitudes. To do that, we must get bigger like Nietzsche. But we also must remain grateful and humble like Rumi. We must become the lake while at the same time recognize the source, which is something greater. The lake itself symbolically is a vessel which contains the substance of God, substance of the afterlife, 
psyche. Not unlike the Holy Grail. And we too must become that. To finish, I'm going to read yet another passage from Answer to Job. Just to drive this point home of what we must do to hold the tension of the opposites and to be that vessel like the lake. Quote, The fact that Christian ethics leads to collisions of duty speaks in its favor by engendering insoluble conflicts and consequently an afflictio anime, it brings man nearer to a knowledge of God. All opposites are of God, therefore man must bend to this burden, and in so doing he finds that God in his oppositeness has taken possession of him, incarnated himself in him. He becomes a vessel filled with divine conflict. We rightly associate the idea of suffering with the state in which the opposites violently collide with one another, and yet we hesitate to describe such a painful experience as being, quote, redeemed. Yet it cannot be denied that the great symbol of the Christian faith, the cross, upon which hangs the suffering figure of the Redeemer, has been emphatically held up before the eyes of Christians for nearly 2,000 years. This picture is completed by the two thieves, one of whom goes down to hell, the other into paradise. One could hardly imagine a better representation of the oppositeness of the central Christian symbol. Why this inevitable product of Christian psychology should signify redemption is difficult to see except that the conscious recognition of the opposites, painful though it may be at the moment, does bring with it a definite feeling of deliverance. It is on the one hand a deliverance from the distressing state of dull and helpless unconsciousness, and on the other hand a growing awareness of God's oppositeness, in which man can participate if he does not shrink from being wounded by the dividing sword which is Christ. Only through the most extreme and most menacing conflict does the Christian experience deliverance into divinity, always provided that he does not break, but accepts the burden of being marked out by God. In this way alone can the Imago Dei realize itself in him and God become man. End quote. Thank you very much for listening to Lakes of Bliss and Fire, this two-part series I've done on the symbolism and appearance of lakes and near-death experiences and what that might mean to us in terms of their sacred and religious significance to cultures around the world. All of these things I've discussed are not exclusive to the image of the lake. We're looking at them through this particular symbolism, but ideas of salvation and damnation do not only belong to lakes, obviously. And so there will be future episodes where I explore other symbols as they appear in NDEs and try to make sense of them. Because ultimately, 
My goal is to allow us to identify these symbols within our own experience, such as in dreams, and be able to gain our own insight into the question of what happens after we die. Because that's a question that only we ourselves can answer. Thank you very much for listening.